to the Wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through Chapter 44 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer. Hey there, my name is Discount Cassius. <laughs> I, I'm just PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. You were going for Cassius there? I got That's like, why I said discount. Ah, man, I, I was getting Weird like, radio announcer. Yeah, you know. like 1950s advertiser. Yeah, but... To be honest, I don't think TGR's Cassius sounds that much different than like a <laughs> dialed down <laughs> version of that. Okay. At the very least, it's some kind of gold. Mm, so sure. I'm, I feel I feel good in that. I, but. I was feeling like copper, maybe. 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 I don't know. I, I like felt my tone hitting Cassius and I was like, okay, well, that's kind of I mean, like content doesn't work and it was clearly salesy, but. You know, it was what it was. I think that might actually be the first time on the show that I haven't used my name in the intro. <laughs> Could be. I think so. Well, nobody's uh, going to know who you are now. Yeah, apparently. Everyone's super confused <laughs> as to who I am. But PJ, today is our sixth episode, and we're going to be talking about chapters 37 through 44, the beginning of Tempest, part three of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer. We're going to be in part three for most of the rest of this book. I got to I got to tell you. So I'm going to keep saying Tempest over and over and over again. But Tempest. Tempest. But How many PJ, parts what are, are there? you drinking today? Are there four? Four. Okay. Four parts. Yep. Cool. I am drinking a a take on a take on, on an espresso martini, if that makes sense. Interesting. So Anthony Baker. Is a bartender out of New York who created, apparently, this cocktail called Espress Yourself. It is, by by the quotes that I was reading, he doesn't like all the bitterness that espresso brings. So he uses cold brew and then a little bit more of a heavier coffee liqueur, like Mr. Black. I don't have that. And I was able to make, I, I made mocha pot espresso, basically. So I, I kind of reverted back to that sort of traditional espresso martini with Kahlua and espresso. But the interesting thing is that it uses both Blanco tequila and mezcal in the recipe. Ooh. So one and a half ounces of Blanco tequila. Two-thirds of an ounce of Kahlua, half an ounce of mezcal, one ounce of espresso, one-third of an ounce of agave nectar. I did five drops of mole bitters, five drops of Hellfire Shrub, both from Bitterman's, mm -hmm. and then two drops of vanilla extract, all shaken and double-strained. I don't have my coupe glasses still. They are still stored away, so I just served it into a lowball that I've been serving basically all of my drinks in lately <laughs> because they're really, really pretty. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So visky glasses, visky, definitely need to get myself some. Yes. They're very nice. And I've got the, the matching highball set. 
yeah, that's on my short list of of things to buy to dress up my apartment a little bit or to dress up my drinks mm-hmm. a little bit better too instead of the photos. So I'm very excited. That sounds really tasty. It, it sounds is like a very good, good kind of yeah split. Um, you would think that the tequila and mezcal would be way overpowering, but with so much coffee flavor and straight up coffee, it <laughs> they kind of annihilate each other a little bit and it makes for this really smooth drinking drink. I think with the Kahlua, probably don't need the vanilla extract. You could probably step that back a little bit mm-hmm. or exclude it altogether. I might go even heavier on the two different bitters. It called for one dash, but mine, those Bitterman's bottles are droppers. So I just kind of yeah. estimated what a dash would be. So I think I'd go maybe even double what I've gotten there. But yeah. I love Bitterman's. I think they have great flavor. They are always, you always have to use way more than anticipated. Like mm-hmm. I, when using the grapefruit bitters, of which I adore, easily my favorite of the bunch that I've had or that I've bought at the very least, I swear to God, I did like not a full like dropper or anything crazy like that, but I did get quite a bit in there because they've got like a line measurement and I would just squirt the whole damn thing and generally worked, but it's a lot. I bought this three pack specifically because I just wanted the Tiki bitters Mm. and it was, you got a nice discount and I'm like, ah, I might as well get the other bitters too for doing the value pack. And then tiki bitters, awesome, delicious, dropped it on the ground. So, yeah, I don't have my tiki bitters anymore. Oh, no. But it works out. I needed exactly these two bitters for this cocktail. So, great. Back half, I don't have a beer. I have uh, leftover wine from my wedding. (laughs) I have a lot of leftover wine from my wedding. So, this is just the bogle petite syrah that we used as uh table markers so i think you might have been at table number seven no no i don't think you were no i was because you drank because that we one. drank our bottle yeah, yeah you guys to, drank your to, bottle without without getting too nitty-gritty because we don't need to get into that necessarily mine was cork tainted not that the wine in general is not good but our bottle was cork tainted that we mm-hmm. had at the table and i lost a bet and drank it all anyway yeah it's not an expensive bottle of wine. I think that it's like a twelve dollar no, bottle. But I've or had something. like I've yeah. had enough to like know and I definitely when I tasted it I went, oop, nope, definitely, definitely not. But so that's what I've got. What are you what are you drinking, sir? I'm currently having just a whiskey sour. It's something very classic, very easy. I've got a couple of things. We weren't I wouldn't say we're pressed for time or anything like that, but you know, I just wanted something easy, something that did, wasn't super involved, so I did this. I will say I am making a green tea syrup that I plan on using in a cocktail for next week that I'm very excited about. So. Nice. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, but that's a tease, as it were. Following that up, I've got a Freak of Nature, which is a Wicked Weed um, Brewing Company double IPA. So, nothing crazy to write home about. It'll all be really tasty, and I'm excited. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, before we get too far into the chapters themselves, PJ, I'd love to hear your overall feelings about this week's reading. A lot of a lot of fun interactions. I mean, very little action, obviously. Some some rat traps. But mostly it's it's fun seeing the interactions between different characters that we have previously not sort of seen mesh. So I just, I I found it very 
illuminating that way. And then uh, it ends in horror, which it does. (laughs) (laughs) PJ, I can't tell you how badly I actually wanted to split off the Lysander chapters and not cover them. But there is so much that happens that like this is the only proper cliffhanger because otherwise there would be no cliff to hang on to some degree. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I had to leave you here. I can tell you I audibly gasped at the very end of this when I read it the first time when I was in the coffee shop uh, reading the entirety of part three. So so begins in my journey, my trip to Kansas as a part of this book. And this was <laughs> when I was in Kansas uh, City in the coffee shop. Um reading i remember you talking about gasping in the coffee shop when you were talking yeah. to me about this book uh before there's, I got there's a number to of things it. that happened in that coffee shop so okay. we'll we'll get to them all over the course of the next couple <laughs> weeks as we talk about different moments so i'm uh very excited to kind of proceed through this part i will say up front that this is one of my favorite sections of the book i adore everything with quicksilver and mateo in particular, the entire discussion of the tabula rasa, getting into a lot of the sort of philosophy of leave or stay or fighting for a new civilization, generational ship, like all of that shit is. We talked a little bit about like my love of hard sci-fi, I think, in the Sunlit Man episode that we did this last weekend. And this is the type of things that I really like in hard sci-fi. This doesn't even get into it as hard as a lot of that does. But just like the conversation around it and a more philosophical approach, I really appreciate it. So mm-hmm. I think uh, one of my favorite chapters so far of this book has been in this section. Um, cool. So we'll get to it. That's very exciting. So we'll totally talk about this as we kind of go through those chapters. So let's start there. We'll start with part three, Tempest. And to start off here is the quote again, each of them so far from Homer. Ah. Uh, How shameless the way these mortals blame the gods. From us alone, they say, come all their miseries. Yes, but they themselves, with their own reckless ways, compound their plans beyond their proper share. Paints, paints, not plans. Are these quotes, I mean, obviously all attributed to Homer, but are they all from the Odyssey? I believe part two, if I remember correctly, was actually from the Iliad, but they're all from the Iliad or the Odyssey. Okay. Any other works well-known by Homer? I mean, there are collections, I think, but I don't know if there's anything. Now you have me questioning. I thought the second one was, I thought we talked about this, but now I'm forgetting. We could have. But I feel, like, I feel like Rampart was from the Iliad. No, I was wrong. They're all the Odyssey so far, thus far. Yeah. So. Cool. Leading hard on the Odyssey. Ramparts does quote moments and talk about moments that occur during the Iliad, but they're all from the Odyssey. Okay. Cool. Or references, you know, the Battle of Ithaca and whatnot. So, all of everything Apollonius talks about. <laughs> I mean, not yes. everything, but. I mean, it's pretty much his focal point as far yeah. as things go. <laughs> yeah. Definitely understand that. Yeah, I really I really just appreciate kind of the choice to open consistently with the quotes across the board. Not that like an author can't choose to open more widely with things and kind of cut back and forth and do as they please. But it just kind of keeps that narrow lens that this is Darrow's Odyssey, right, in a lot of ways. But the Odyssey isn't just about Odysseus in this case. It's everyone and everything around them. And 
is this not also maybe Lysander's Odyssey is the question that I think it begs in its own right. And it feels like that's the case so far. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk about this particular quote as we go through and work through the parts and find its reference. But with that, we'll get into chapter 37, Darrow Cacophony. So obviously, Cacophony refers to the music here that's at the very end of this section that we'll talk about more specifically. But I also can't help but feel like this whole chapter is sort of the noise of Darrow's life over these many months at sea on the Archie. I I felt like that was kind of the point. Um, hmm. Highlighted by the uh, the music style, but I felt the ongoing happenings were the more present cacophony. Just thoughts and trying to keep himself sane and all of his interactions with a progressively more unstable Cassius and Severo. Like everything is both of them. <laughs> yeah. Everyone was on shakier footing, especially throughout this outside of Darrow, of whom is mostly stabilizing. It seems. Yeah. Even um, Ori is, is pretty, she's not super present at least until they're about to board for the rim. But, she seems a little bit more level-headed. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, I would I would exclude her. I guess of our brothers of sorts that we talk about throughout the section, that's really kind of the 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 grouping of them is what I would point to as being unstable predominantly. Yeah. Of course, there's training being had on here, of which we, we assumed had to happen because of our conversations over the last couple of weeks. It's time for Darrow to refine and become more than what he was. I, which I think is also something from the end of part one. And so this is really kind of speaking to that point of I have all of this time on my hands and we train many, many hours a day. And we see many hours of training between Cassius and Darrow as he mm -hmm. refines himself. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's important to to learn these new skills and learn how to maybe uh, fight in a way that isn't broken already. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, just standard training in general has to happen on these journeys and i know we get the the point of view of these high high-ranking officers and our protagonists and everything but i it makes me think about how extensive the training grounds on ships need to be for entire uh, legions to be mm -hmm. able to maintain their prowess and and stay in shape uh while on deployment <laughs> Yeah, this is actually so much later in the reading, but I want to bring it up now. There's the comment about being happy to visit the Dustmaker and that Roan and the Dragoons are really excited because it's time for them to like get in a good swim. And, you know, they actually have because of the size of this ship, they can actually, you know, like commit to, mm -hmm. you know, serious exercise, which is, I think, kind of a neat little add there to your point. Yeah. Yeah, I, flushes I, that out I hadn't even way. considered that when I was thinking about this, but yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, there's got to be, you know, and it, specifically good swim makes me go. There are pools on a spaceship, of course, there are pools on a spaceship, but like that's the resource that we're doing to like exercise. Fascinating. It is. Um, it's incredibly good. Really weird, though. <laughs> 
Yeah, very strange. Very strange. Feels like that would be a lot of work to keep that pool under control. Yeah. Imagine yeah. Uh, taking evasive maneuvers when there's a uh, swimming lesson going on. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like sounds like a dangerous time. I want to bring up <laughs> I, this is this is one of the only times that I've maybe left my notes so bald faced for a while. I because I didn't go back and correct some of these these things fully, but the I wrote the tenth thingy, <laughs> which which is the tenth understanding, right? I believe. The tenth understanding. I'm yes. The tenth understanding. But the but tenth I really, thingy actually made me chuckle when I was filling out these notes. <laughs> this was I, I started 37 listening to the audiobook and I just took like high level detailed notes. And then I was like, oh, God, I should really do like full notes, not do like half notes for now and then go back and redo them. So then with 38, I picked it up and I did my usual full notes without doing any prep notes. And I never went back to 37 to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. so I, I really like the 10th understanding here that we get where as it reads. Forgetting is essential to learning, just as exhaling is essential to breathing. Breathe out, then in. Find the self, then lose it once again. Thus, the path goes ever onward. I loved how this this sort of meditation by Darrow keeps popping up throughout this section. Um, mm-hmm. At least this chapter, for sure. But I think it keeps popping up throughout this section. Um, I might be mistaken in that, but just the, the thought of exhaling and the, the commentary on exhaling things felt great. It, it, even in our lives, it's a great bit of philosophy to keep in mind. It's a more, the way I think about it, it's a more human focused metaphor than like Newton's third law of motion, uh, oh, which is interesting. The, uh, equal and opposite re- reactions. Yeah. And that's that's interesting. That's I hadn't, sort of the way I hadn't that thought I about it that way. Thought about it. Yeah, and that's part of the reason that I actually really like this as an idea from Pierce is because it feels like we're actually getting something that is kind of an original philosophical text, right? And there's a bunch of different ways to spin it. But the fact that it's just not not just referential is great, especially in a sea of references, because we can kind of point to things that may have inspired it. And especially because we know that this comes from red culture, we can kind of talk about mm-hmm. where those influences might have came from. Yeah. And uh, true to form, there's obviously some stoic, a lot of stoic nature to it. But I, I was... It was consequential that I, I used the term meditation there. I didn't mean to actually evoke uh, Marcus Aurelius. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't even mean that. I just meant even in considering like the third law as a mm-hmm. as a portion here. But yeah, good good work on accidentally slipping that in here. I also want to bring up another thing that pops up here, and the the exhaling inhaling kind of does pop up. I, I think again in the scene um, with the tabula rasa and the conversation that happens between Quicksilver and Darrow as he's touching the god tree but there is this whole idea of creating a syllabus for himself right around the ideas that Apple has and specifically he cites body brain and heart it's hard to ignore how closely this actually follows a lot of the same ideas that are from Benjamin Franklin's Poor Man's Almanac, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise that he popularized. 
that was originally an old kind of Latin proverb that I think that this thing that Apple is latched onto really mirrors. Mm-hmm. I can see that connection. Uh, the wealthy part's a bit of a stretch, unless you really sort of stretch the definition to include like a wealth of compassion to bridge that sort of direct comparison to heart. But I see where you're coming from. Wise is often used to talk about the heart, yeah, not but, the brain. Okay, brain, sure. Or wealth yeah. of intelligence, I guess. Wealth, yeah, wealth of knowledge is a is a common yeah. phrase. Oh, yeah, but that's all, fair. All that that's to a say, good point. Good point. I'm actually, okay. I'm not, I'm not trying to push against you either here. It's definitely inspired by, right? Yeah. Like it, again, the healthy, wealthy, wise thing is credited to Jefferson. I believe it was actually coined by some 16th century writer. I can't. Remember. It's like John something or other. Might Franklin, even be John Locke. That's not the right time frame. But do you mean Franklin? Um, did I say someone else? What did Jefferson. I say? Benjamin Jefferson is what I said. That's you said, you, said Jeff, you just said Jefferson. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Franklin. I totally meant Franklin. <laughs> but yeah, Ben Franklin, of course, is the intention there. Poor man's almanac. But I believe it was originally coined, coined quote by someone else of whom borrowed it from an old Latin proverb of which this seems to be tr- attempting or intending to cite. On theme. So, oh, of course, I, yeah. I like that. I'm just saying that it's, it's interesting to kind of see the way that these things cycle around um, in this world too, right? Mm-hmm. Like they've worked backwards and uh, there's there's not a whole lot of acknowledgement of uh, the Americas throughout, of course, which I think is actually kind of interesting. Yeah, in this. They, they early on, I want to say in like Red Rising or maybe Golden Sun, they talk about the American Empire at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think they talk about it being short-lived relatively yes, there's something something like that yeah. yeah so it's it's just interesting too that that like pe- peaks into kind of you know the way that maybe benjamin franklin hasn't had a lasting impact but this mm-hmm. old latin proverb has re-emerged in kind of a fun way right but yeah in general i think also the modern take on healthy wealthy wise is closer to body brain heart so mm-hmm. yeah i hadn't even considered uh, wealth of knowledge that's a really great <laughs> point yeah yeah franklin is kind of intending something a little bit different there but you know the way that things we intend versus the way that they're interpreted and what they actually mean when you read into someone's writing are a little bit different so because mm. you know wealth of knowledge leads to money handle yourself etc i don't know right. anyway how about them knives i love Severo's knives his little knife collection that he makes with all of his enemies <laughs> names holy fucking shit dude you are unhealthy and need to go see a therapist. I disagree. He's super healthy. He's <laughs> this is this is how everyone should handle their shit. <laughs> Who's your knife for, PJ? <laughs> All therapists should be replaced with blacksmiths, and <laughs> we should become a more martial society. All right. Well, with that take out of the way. <laughs> Go to therapy. I appreciate that. The, yeah, go to, go to therapy, please. I think there are a lot of examples of characters who should go to therapy after this section of the book. Severo? Yeah. It's Quicksilver? Quicksilver, for sure. <laughs> I can't believe Quicksilver has survived as long as he has. Holy shit. Uh, Generally, the Rim and Lysander. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, the rim is going to have to go to therapy real quick. They just got <laughs> gaslit so hard. <laughs> gaslit girl boss hard, hard impersonate. To, I hard guess. to take go to therapy it, it, lightly, but, you know. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lysander's I, past the point of therapy being useful. Mm-hmm. Yep. There, you heard it here. There is a point where therapy is no longer useful. <laughs> Should go the way of Severo and his knives. I'm definitely kidding, but yeah, no, maybe, maybe I'm not. I don't know. Uh, I do love the knives. Regardless, I hope he's able to use them for their namesakes. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I want each of them to be bloodstained and uncleaned by the end of this book <laughs> oh, that's that's a lot to get accomplished I, I like your ambition here okay by the end of this series all right there we go <laughs> fine i'm very excited fine <laughs> so we get into kind of one of the final things i wanted to talk about with which also includes Severo, but ultimately cacophony of which is this combination of green and obsidian music what do you make of it any specific thoughts that it evokes in you anything that it feels evocative of i imagine one of two things yeah. either this combination of like tribal drum beats gregorian chant and dubstep ooh or if i want to draw like a single comparison something ex- inspired by experimental freeform jazz from the 50s and 60s just very okay. garbage can jazz <laughs> <laughs> I, there's a term for it there's a there's a specific name for that genre of jazz that i completely completely misremember or not misremembering but forgetting but i remember hearing pendulette talk about it a lot <laughs> like he really likes mm. that sort of cacophonous jazz but i don't remember the specific name Got it. Got it. Yeah, I'm not I'm not 100 percent certain on that one, but I'm sure that it exists and that Mm. it's real. It sounds like. Sounds like something that I should know, but I do not get more into garbage noise jazz crossland. I mean, PJ, with the amount of weird garbage noise shit that I listen to, I mean, we listen to the entirety or most of a record of Japanese industrial music from the It's really good. It's really good. It's really but, good. That PJ combined with like Mongolian throat singing is what I imagine this. To be yeah. To. Okay. Yeah. Mongolian throat singing might be a better description than uh, Gregorian chant. I I can see Gregorian chant too. I just yeah. like that was specifically where my brain went more more in mm-hmm. line with. Uh, Throw a didgeridoo but, in there too, just for the sake of course. Of it. Yeah. yeah. And obsidian cultures borrowed from all over the place. Maybe uh, bagpipes. And a Corian? Probably not bagpipes. There are no reds. But we'll, I mean, not that the reds have bagpipes, but if anyone's mm-hmm. going to have bagpipes, it's probably the reds. That's maybe the violets because they think themselves weird and they probably, I don't know. Well, they probably are. thought they invented golf too. They might have. May have. Yeah. They could have reinvented golf. <laughs> Someone had to, right? Mm-hmm. I, I have one more thing. It's relevant to the book series it's a little bit of a deviation and i'm sorry that i promised i'd be completely hinged this episode but we don't really see much in the form of leisure sports Hmm. in 
in this universe at all. Um, like we don't see golf outings or anything of the like, but we also don't really deal with like silvers that much who would probably benefit from something like that or not benefit from, but be keen on participating in that sort of outing. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think the closest we kind of get is there are two different kind of things. Eh, three. I'll, I'll throw in hunts as a third. But like we have the sort of green VR stuff that we kind of know is going on, mm-hmm. which dates all the way back to the very first book with like exploring, what is it, Minas Morgul, I think, or Sirithungul. I can't remember which one it is. But yeah, one it's of something, two, something Lord of the Rings. I think it's Sirithungul. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. It's, I don't think it's Minas Morgul. I think it's Sirithungul. And then also there are the, I mean, we, we know the acting thing, but that's not really a sport. There's the Colosseums, though, mm. that we kind of see pop up again and again, including in Sons of Aries, which is why I, I bring it up here. It's because in my head, that was the first one that popped in my head was that moment. Right. Yeah. Which yeah, predates right. the war. So, but is that a leisure sport? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. For the people participating, maybe. Maybe there's bocce. Yeah, red-headed bocce. All right, with that, we're going to go into chapter 38, Darrow, Tabula Rasa. There's something to me that is so special about being back with both Quicksilver and Mateo in this chapter. It warms those sort of like deep cockles of my heart, those like deep little quadrants that, you know, burp out the blood and make me happy. Burp. Um, don't, I, <laughs> hope they do that. I hope your heart doesn't burp anything. <laughs> <laughs> go see a doctor. <laughs> but we start with Mateo and Darrow tries to rush through uh, this chance meeting, but Mateo quickly stalls that asking how he is and apologizing for the mess that he's been dealt and that he had to deal with on Mercury, as well as the death of Theodora on Luna, Orion's death on Mercury, Alexander's sacrifice on Mercury and Dancer's death on Luna as well. And these are all painful reflections by all means for Darrow. And it begs the question of how the silver and pink kind of have all this knowledge, but Clearly not all of it, as he believes Severo to be dead as well before the man walks out in front of him, surprising him deeply. Yeah. This is a conversation that I think Darrow needs to have. Not, well, yeah, basically. Uh, not just now, but every every once in a while. We've talked uh, quite a bit about how Darrow is the focus of this book as opposed to the Reaper. And... In order to be Darrow and not the Reaper, he needs to have his humanity and his emotions about him and at the forefront. He needs maintenance. He needs to address the fact that he's lost friends. And hopefully, Mateo bringing it up and kind of confronting Darrow with it can help with that. I don't think that's the intention. I think beyond that sort of read on this, it's nice to see a genuine condolence from somebody who's not mostly ingrained in the war or in any war. And like, we really don't get much, if any, of that throughout these books. It's, it's so callous to death. That's a really good point. There isn't a whole lot of other – I mean, to, to some degree – at the very least, in Iron Gold, Lyria was kind of that, 
as far as the war itself went, obviously there were other components of her story that are much more gruesome, but they're different. They're they're like downstream impacts of the war. But otherwise, you're right. It is I, very callous towards the way that it thinks about life. I, I Yes, I agree with you there. I was talking specifically for what Darrow interacts with. Mm, he is he's yeah. so surrounded by other people that are similarly calloused and entrenched in warfare um, that he doesn't have the opportunity to really talk openly or uh, emotionally about the losses that he's uh, experienced. Yeah. And to kind of add to that, you know, this this is pulling back on something previous as well, but looking at Virginia and the way that she feels impacted by the battle that she had to lead in and of itself, because it's never something she's had to do. She feels that similar weight and immediately compares it to Darrow's here. And so that makes so much sense that tangibly he's never kind of let that off or shrugged it off. And finally, he's kind of letting that go and understanding, you know, the the sort of pain that he's been carrying. Mm-hmm. He cannot be Atlas forever. <laughs> Atlas right. meaning the, with the world on his back, not not the Fear Knight. Well, he also can't be the Fear Knight. <laughs> There's also that. <laughs> nobody, nobody can be. Are you sure about that? <laughs> nobody should be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we then move from that conversation to Quicksilver in his rant about the awfulness that has befallen Luna. But I really love Darrow's internal monologue throughout this whole section about how Severo gets away with treating Quick worse because of his dad and their relationship and how he doesn't even really notice that Quicksilver kind of lets him beat him up way more than he should. It's it's really just kind of great, even despite this rant and being surrounded by this digital mob in the moment. It is great. Um I don't remember if we've ever had an interaction with Severo and Quicksilver. Have we? I don't think so. Okay. Not that I can recall immediately. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to read this chapter alone and come away with it realizing how close these two characters are somehow. Um, mm-hmm. But that's because of this internal monologue and and that sort of epiphany. I guess, if you want to call it that, that Darrow clues us into. Maybe it's not closeness, but there's a fondness that Quicksilver has for Severo that's previously gone completely under the radar for me. Yeah, I think there's a good argument that Quicksilver is pretty easily overshadowed in these stories by Fitchner, just by the the weight of impact. And I think that's part of what we're what like this section is in particular meant to impart on us is sort of the other side especially if you haven't read the sons of aries of which i recommend if you're listening to this right now go get them uh, i think the only totally. place that you can get physicals of the first one is these days is on kindle or other digital sites they're they're no longer in print physically the so only one i believe that phys- is is the third one you, you said the only place you can get physicals oh sorry the only place that you can get it period okay really? you can get the graphic audio as well but they don't yeah. I- I, I remember seeing it not that long ago on Amazon, but maybe you can get people reselling it for an obscene uh, amount. Of okay, yeah, yeah, but it is at present out of print. Gotcha. Doesn't mean it might not be reprinted or like made into some kind of omnibus now that it's all out. But if you're looking for it, I highly recommend. And if for whatever reason you're like, oh god, the art style, just just understand that the first book and they is like meant to kind of feel 
almost like it's brutal and like edged and messy because that story in particular is brutal and edged and messy and it improves as it matches sort of the mentality of our characters. Yeah. I don't know if that's intentional, but it feels that way. It is a great story. The writing, I don't think, was entirely done by Pierce, but he is a a primary. Pierce and Rick Hoskins, if I I remember correctly. It's canon. The story is very good. And if you listen or if you read them, you can listen to us talk about them because we've done the first two and I've read the third and we will. The third is on the agenda. Figure out a time to record it. Yeah, we're getting there. We're finally catching up in the rears. So, yeah, we will. We will get there. Took a lot of you had to get uh, married. (laughs) A lot of another friend who had to get married out of our schedule. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been it's been a lot, but we're here now. So, but yeah, I like if if you haven't appreciated Quicksilver up until this moment, I can't help but recommend those because you will grow fond of a man of whom has otherwise been described as a bulldog and a bit of a capitalist (laughs) asshole. Up until some of these moments. So we continue, though, around the study and pass a window overlooking a garden that we'll talk about specifically in a moment and move to treasures of the past and recollections of the involvement of the two of them as a foundation of this rebellion. But there's the quote from good old Ash Lord Rogue here that I kind of, in a gruff way, love. I once heard Magnus Algrimis tell your old companion Roke that losing an army will either make a man a philosopher or a suicide. Glad you chose differently than Fabii. <laughs> Both the original quote and Quicksilver's comparison and retelling of it, very clearly literal. But I can't help but feel that this advice is so easily made metaphorical as well. I hope we continue to get past quotes that were off page from departed characters. It's something that I've really appreciated about this book specifically. Um, I don't think we've gotten a lot from the previous books in this trilogy, but there's been a handful of times uh, this book and in this section where we kind of get to revisit those lost greats and greats in the way that their, their importance precedes them characters yeah i i definitely agree with you i really appreciate in particular um this coming from the ash lord in in a way like i love the fact that we finally get to kind of hear something that we we barely get any ash lord at all period other than Um, sick dying ash lord yeah but i i even mean in the original trilogy like we Mm -hmm. hear of the ash lord more than anything else and the only other time that i think that he's initially mentioned really is when he is on or during the Battle of Luna when Lysander calls him and basically turns around the whole thing. So, right. yeah, that's pretty much it as far as those different moments go. Sorry, I just had to do my B-reel in the middle of us recording for like the third time in four days or whatever. Yeah, I I adore this little quote. Not only that, but I really like the fact that it almost comes out of Quicksilver's mouth as lyrical. like. The Grimace tell your old companion Roke that losing an army will either make a man a philosopher or a suicide. Glad you chose differently than Fabii. Like that hat that is every it, that's a sonnet. That it has a is musical the, that is that is yeah. the rhyme scheme of a sonnet. It's perfect. Or the not the rhyme scheme, but the the 
assonance dissonance cadence of a of a sonnet. So mm-hmm. it is excellent. It's just a little flash, you know. Every once in a while, you get those from Pierce, and you're just like, "Ooh, that's so nice." <laughs> it's uh, got to be intentional, right? I think so. There's no question in my head. It's it's not not intentional. Mm-hmm. I've been experiencing a lot of those reading a different series that I know that a lot of our listeners will be happy to hear that I'm reading, but I'm currently very much enjoying The Empire of Silence by Christopher Rocchio, of whom is a North Carolinian author that is PJ younger than us by two years. And oh my God, there are, there are a few people that make me go, I could never do that. And he is one of them that I could never hope to imitate. We're young and no one doing anything incredible should be younger than us. So impossible. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> impossible. I'm but not washed up. You're especially... washed up. <laughs> no, we're not even 30 yet. You can't shout that. We have another, you have another full year, basically. I've got only a couple of months. So I'll wash out at 30. We'll be good. So the group of everyone sits down and Darrow begins to peel back the current position and Quicksilver comes back with a difficult answer to the question posed, saying that this isn't Darrow's fault, but the people's at large. And Quicksilver begins to unfurl his plan of the tabula rasa, a blank slate in front of us. Now, you've heard of Eo's dream. We've talked of Virginia's endure, but Quicksilver's dream is fascinating and a completely different spin on sort of the whole concept of inheritance and dreams that we've really kind of focused on in some way in this book. I I find it fascinating. This decision to build this generational ship for this to be a new seed for humanity, I think is a lovely, if not fatalistic dream. Yeah, it's it's lovely, but it is troubling (laughs) in some ways, specifically the way that he's executing it, which we'll get into Mm -hmm. later. I think, but to address it a little bit now, it's understandable. It's great even when viewed in certain lights, but it is troubling in his motivations in some ways. He seems to be using nobility and selflessness as kind of a shield against the prospect of being hurt again in any way. And the the end result is beneficial I don't think there's any way to really doubt that, but on a personal note, it's depressing. <laughs> it definitely is. There is also so much fun philosophy that surrounds the idea of a tabula rasa to begin with, but it does, to, before we hit on that, I want to talk about the Quicksilver note that you're talking about here, and it does it does hurt, and it is painful, especially to see someone of whom was one of the biggest proponents forever and the dollars backing and this sort of financial crux on which everything leaned just walk away. Yeah. It's hard not to feel that betrayal. Yeah, that's... But he's already done that. You yeah, know? he's past that. Yeah, it, it, we are well a, past it, it's the already inflection gone. point. Yeah. So we're just lucky we get to say bye. That's kind right. of the way that this this whole section is to some degree. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to bring this up in part because it touches on a couple of different things. But the tabula rasa, for the record, Tim Gerard Reynolds calls it tabula rasa. I've always heard it as tabula rasa. Whichever way makes the most sense, that's fine. But 
what a tabula rasa is. I just said it completely different for fun there. Did you see? I didn't even think about it when I said it out loud. Tabula. What the fuck am I doing? Tabula. <laughs> tabula. Tabula. Tabula rasa. You know, you got one of those tabula rasas in your pocket. <laughs> tabula rasa is a wax book, according to Aristotle, and that was kind of the way. It was an unscribed tablet. It's come to mean like clean slate in English in a big way. But generally, the idea being a wax tablet that you could write things down on and then heat up the wax and it would return to its original form. So so as this society might be able to, if it needs to, it's also obviously this philosophical idea of like the nature versus nurture argument. If we started with a blank slate, again, an Aristotelian argument, but starting with a blank slate, this is a big component of nurture, where if you remove the things that might be negative nurture the absence of nurture, which isn't nature necessarily is the argument, could be more impactful in the way that it shapes people. Okay, so I had never considered the idea that in that sort of nature versus nurture argument that it is not a not a binary, like uh, it, it was always a combination, but th- the idea that the absence of one is not the whole of the other. Yeah, that's correct. A, that's a, because it's a, that's a thinker for me. I'm going to have to. Yeah, that. it's, it's one of the many, like there are so many fun, we don't need to get into this fully. I just got really excited and like sat up in my chair. But there are so many like fun ethical quandaries that a lot of people think is like very simple and very linear. Nature versus nurture is one of them. But when you start to get into some of the the complexities that people like Laertes wrote about or um, obviously Aristotle, you start to like form these more complex ideas about philosophy than is just generally the sort of boiled down two line description that we get. So you can kind of generally understand a concept, but that general understanding often does much more damage to the concept than actually deeply understanding it does. Mm -hmm. Like Newton's laws, you don't need a whole lot more than the laws for it to make sense. A lot of philosophy, you need a whole lot more than the base components for it to like fully become the argument that it should. That's fair. We I think I talked we talked about the body mind component here as well. But that was the Benjamin Franklin thing. But that was also a John Lockeism, and John Locke, of course, also no Hobbes did the Leviathan. John Locke being one of the other philosophers that greatly inspired the early American Constitution writing and the Declaration of Independence and the founding fathers in general. But also the same sort of school of thought as we're seeing explored throughout a lot of this book. So was Locke a contemporary of Kant? Uh, no, wasn't Kant later than Locke? So Locke is, I want to say like 16 something to like just the edge of the 17th, if I remember correctly. I think Kant is early 17th to 18 or something like that. He was long lived. That's one of the things that I remember about Kant. And he lived through the American Revolution. John Locke did not. Gotcha. That's part of the reason. And like didn't really live through the colonizing of the Americas, even in the way that they were. So, okay, that's one of the differences that I remember between the two. Sounds good. Yeah. But Kant's great. That's separate. Cool. Yeah. John Locke. Again, one of the many people of whom rewrote and republished the healthy, wealthy, wise thing and mm-hmm. believed to be the original citation therein. So 
Oh, yeah, the dream, man. I love I love this conversation, too, about inheritance and everything that's happening there. And as such, we have to talk about the inheritance of Severo's rage in this moment. And it's just so justified. Right. I can't imagine a single person more on fire and simultaneously feeling the death threats of the invisible eyes that would have annihilated him from the shadows that these automatons were. But it, it's it's painful. But I can't imagine any other man would genuinely go through with it. Daryl, <laughs> however, yeah. despite his rage, is open to listening in this moment, which is a different twist. Yeah. In in all honesty, in my first read through of it, I was thinking about Severo. I was I was thinking about him. So for his reaction felt very cathartic for me <laughs> in my mm-hmm. first read through. Like I, I I felt similarly. Um I understand it. I get it. I don't think I was as angry as Severo was. But it did feel like a an abandonment and betrayal in the moment. Yeah, there's there's no question. I mean, like, this is a betrayal on levels not seen since Golden Sun in some ways. Like this is this is Cassius stabbing almost as bad, but not quite. If he he didn't yeah, he I don't think Quicksilver so. couldn't but. behead Fitchner, but he may as well have if he were alive. Yeah. But also, if he were alive, I don't know that maybe, I mean, I guess it depends. It's so many what ifs. It's it's too many hypotheticals to really break it down. More of but it, if, trying to embody Severo's reaction in a different way is what I meant by that, that hyperbole. Yeah, but I, I guess my point is if Fitchner was alive still and was mm-hmm. the Republic was in the same situation everything was going the way that it did otherwise i wonder if quicksilver would be more hesitant to put this plan into action as opposed to staying by fitchner's side and and helming the republic okay yeah i'd be curious i mean i, I, I don't uh, know it's it's total speculation i'd be curious though yeah, I feel like it might be I feel like that there's a high probability that he wouldn't have gone this way without having maybe told or talked to his friend about it. But at the same time, this plan has been in motion for a long time. There are seedlings of it even throughout the Sons of Harry's comics. And he mentions so, having the like this is has this has been his dream since well before meeting Fitchner. Yeah. He which didn't we'll get necessarily into believe. I think. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's get let's get into chapter 39, The Golden Gaze, which is one of the most brutal chapters of all of Red Rising in a bunch of different contexts. Um, So. With that, I love that this very difficult chapter in a lot of ways starts with something from Nero, kind Mm. of the start of this whole story, the impetus of everything that we've experienced up until this point from all those years ago and it's this reminder this flash of that cruel but ultimately in this one circumstance at the very least correct man but we move from that flash to quicksilver beginning to lay out the why that he's gone to this length to preserve and restore humanity as he views it darrow follows that up as they're walking through the garden talking about the children and their path with a fascinating question to quicksilver he says This place 
It would have taken longer than a few years to build. You started when we were winning. Did it spring from doubt or hope? And Quicksilver replies, both. I completely understand this answer. I wouldn't have expected a different answer from him, frankly. It's it's a total luxury to be able to plan something like this born completely out of hope. But the plans themselves, I don't think would change if it was entirely a ripcord out of the turmoil of the failing republic. Quick is a man of reasoning and cold practicality. I wouldn't believe for a second that he was so optimistic that zero doubt could penetrate his decision making. I think I think either way if it was entirely out of hope or entirely out of doubt he would or or a combination which it clearly is. I don't think it would change the plans. It might change the small order of operations, but I think the grand master scheme would be very, very, very similar in all cases. Yeah, I generally agree. I think that this would have happened either way. I think the only sort of net question that I would be left with is whether or not he would flee with the ship and Mm. whether or not he would just send it off on its own or run with it. And I feel like he's running with it to avoid persecution and also the potential for this to be caught at all because he doesn't want interference. It's also a retirement of sorts. Like he has been behind the scenes, but the the linchpin to the rising into the fledgling republic, into the wartime republic, like he, he has been so leaned on and and stressed and stretched and and used not in, not in a necessarily a malicious way but in a way that is taxing and fuck man i'd i'd retire too if i were him at this point how long has this been going on I mean, for him, it's three, almost four decades. Yeah. 30 years? Somewhere between, I mean, I want to say it's like 30, can't be entirely precise about this, but it's got to be like 36, 37, 38, somewhere in that span, Mm -hmm. given the age that we know the characters to be and the fact that basically this was born out of that rebellion. But at the same time, Quicksilver was maybe a little bit ahead of the curve and was already thinking about it. So, yeah, we can call it 40 years because of what it, what happened to him, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I I chalk it up to a retirement. If, it, if it's nothing else, if, if we want to make it entirely selfish, I still can't fault him for it. Right. Yeah, I, I have a hard time faulting for it and we'll get there right now because i think that we have to talk about the ring i think we have to talk about the story i think that it is to me there are a lot of like very brutal things that are depicted inside of this book series i think that ulysses's death is one of the most graphic things ever but this story in my opinion trumps them all not from an emotional standpoint in the immediate sense but in an utter brutality in which you understand where a character is coming from. 
so there's there's a lot to kind of unpack in those those different motions. Ulysses feels immediate, and because it's these characters that we love and these people and the perspective that we're seeing, but foundationally for Quicksilver, this is his life story told plainly, as he says, for basically the second time. We get why he thinks Fitchner's the right fit, especially as we see him in The Sun's Berries. You can also understand why I asked you to finish that series before we hit this to kind of give us a little bit more context on Quicksilver. You get why he'd hate the plan so much and why he'd hate them as much and plan as much as he has. And Quicksilver choosing himself to live in that final moment after the blood has been beaten out of his children in the sheets and his, I mean, mother buck of God, I would also shoot that man into space. Yeah. Fuck. (laughs) Yeah. This was more depressing and savage than I could have ever been prepared for. Um, It sincerely changes the light that I see Quicksilver in. Uh, I don't know why I didn't expect him to be on equal footing emotionally as Fitchner was when it came to tragedy and rage and loss pushing them forward. I should have, but we saw Fitchner's and Fitchner wears his rage a little bit more on his sleeve. Um, So this caught me completely off guard. Um, I expected trauma and, and, a sense of being wronged in in Quicksilver's like origin story, if you want to call it that. But I didn't expect this level of trauma. Foundation shaking shit. Mm-hmm. It also goes back to the the society just breeds cruelty sort of perspective. Just to remind you how bad it was and to put it back in our forefront that what Lysander is fighting for despite his best intentions has never worked. And that's a, that's a retaliate. Like what he experienced was a retaliation for technically following the law. Yeah. It's, it's absurd. It's, it's disgusting. Yeah. It, I can understand why Quicksilver would launch a man into space, harvest his eyeball, and then occasionally feel his heartbeat. I mean, like, Mm. The no one deserves that. A I can understand though, and oh God, I can't. I mean, again, I'm. I don't. I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin. Like Ulysses is its own thing. It's like torture in its own right for our characters, and we can understand what that pain and suffering looks like. Loss is one thing. This is humiliation. This is annihilation of a family, of a moral, of your own business, of your entire enterprise. And then being forced to make a choice between you and the one that you love, your lover not choosing and you self like you being forced to selfishly choose effectively. I don't know that he was forced. I think he probably did it because he's a little bit of a coward. But nonetheless, that kind of thing. He's scared. What alternative does he have? Well, they both die. Right. Yeah. Like That's the alternative. Right. But like he's calculating enough to to have made it past that but yeah i'm i'm with you like there's there's no way yeah fuck all right there's a quote here that i want to read that's what progress does you see 
It leaps ahead of the past, but we can never outrun the trauma that fixed our course. I will never not be that coward shivering beneath the corpse of my love, my children. I will never not see those gold eyes staring down at me, mocking, knowing there was no recourse I can seek. Just as you will never be able to forget Nero's eyes as he killed Eo, we are all ever beneath their golden gaze. That is why I wear this ring, to remind myself of how my war began. Oh, it's so painful. It's a great conclusion to this story and and so well said. It seems this sort of line of thinking has seemingly served him pretty well as a tether to to the ground to to reality to to his motivations and has kept him on track for better or worse towards this this revenge plot that has come to fruition in in an unbelievable way it's still upsetting though it's still crushing yeah yeah it is it is crushing i think this is a good reminder too you had mentioned at the top there's not a whole lot of action in this week and i i don't think there there is but this always proves that like really good drama can totally suffice and like feed us despite Mm -hmm. needing action it's one of those inclinations that i think a lot of tv writers these days are afraid of because audiences sometimes skirt away from slow talky parts but sometimes slow talky parts get you the proper stakes that you need so I mean, look at how well Oppenheimer did. That whole mm-hmm. movie is slow talking parts. Yeah, it's three hours of slow talking parts. Yeah. And like two minutes of bomb explosion. But. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. But then Quicksilver elaborates on the plan that the idea is for this to truly be the tabula rasa like we were talking about in which he will never meet these children on the other end that they will be allowed to choose their own path fully. Darrow follows that up with an important statement after being asked what he thinks about the project or what he thinks in general about this whole thing. And he says, I think when you catch up with that gold who wronged you, you show him mercy. Resist the temptation to face him again. Destroy the ship as you pass. You asked me what I learned on that marcher. It's that. Chains might be made by others, but we tend to them. End his pain. End your own. This is one of this is one of the best Darrow quotes in the entire series so far. It's, it's Specifically, very good. The chains might be made by others, but we tend to them. Yeah. That's well said. I love this answer. Obviously, it's great to see him consider his own growth from the marcher marcher and and his experiences beyond that. And before that, and what he's learned, I can't help but think. I don't. I don't know. I don't know for sure, but I can't help but think that there's some sense of I don't want to say kinship, but similarity that he's drawing between what Quicksilver is putting this gold through and what he went through in the box with Adrius. It's not the same by any stretch but there are very clearly similarities especially if he's like fully conscious fully aware of what's going on yeah i 
I think that's got to be part of part of that. I mean, we're talking decades at this point. This man has just been living basically in this box. So, yeah, I I think that that's got to be it's got to be a part of the consideration in the moment. I I also do think that this is a foundational quote for Darrow in a lot of ways. In my head, the reason that I say that I think it's one of the best is because the whole series begins with EO's dream of break the chains, right? And so to then give us a sort of reason in which the chains perpetuate themselves, I think is foundationally important. And some of that is because we continue to let that trauma impart its mark on us. And that is literally the ring that Quicksilver is holding on to. Breaking the chains isn't entirely external. Right. Yeah. They're chains that are placed on you, and you tend to them. God, it's so good. It's so good. I Personally, I adore this. I think that this was such a great way to like both root us back to the foundation of the series, but also explain where we're at and where Darrow's at in understanding sort of the, the rebellion and what it means um, to then take that a step further. So good. We get another, albeit much more direct parallel to the Odyssey, as Darrow points out the difference between the gray-eyed goddess that helped Odysseus, of which I think gray-eyed patron, I, th- I don't even think he says goddess, but gray-eyed patron that helped Odysseus, which is Athena, and how Quicksilver is very clearly not that. He's one of the other gods that kind of loomed in the background of the story, witnessing what was happening, because all because Quicksilver just wanted to see him one last time, which extended this sort of false hope that he provided, not anything real or super tangible for their goal as they move forward. I know, I know for sure. I know like it's it's almost a cliche to have a book that I I don't think it's actually a cliche, but there are so many books, countless books that draw upon classic ancient stories and the Odyssey itself. But I so greatly appreciate the depth and attention to detail that Pierce has put into porting that story into a new telling it 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 feels like a total love letter <laughs> it it definitely does in particular i think that this book has that sort of feeling and i think that there there are a number of reasons that i really appreciate that because in many ways this whole story this whole larger book series has felt like one thing and so then to be thrown into the odyssey is to also point to it as an inflection point that a hero needs to take. I mean, literally, the Odyssey is foundationally what a lot of people consider like the origin of modern storytelling. So it is not just a cliche, PJ. It is the basis of all cliches. It is the basis mm-hmm. fundamentally that we consider a lot of stories to spring from. And so to take it and use parts of it, but in reference as opposed to full deference... I think that it is really well represented here on the page. And that's why I particularly appreciate it. And also our characters being self-aware that that's what they're doing. Yeah. My one character, my one counter to that claim would be that I rhymed. No. Oh yeah. Right. Gilgamesh, but Gilgamesh doesn't borrow. Yes. Gilgamesh is also an origin of storytelling, but it doesn't, it, it, it is not the hero's journey of which the basis of the hero's journey is literally the odyssey. Okay. Isn't it? 
Isn't Gilgamesh also a hero's journey of sorts? It's, it's foundational. It is a hero's journey of sorts, but it is not the hero's journey as we know it. Okay. The Odyssey is. Fair. Epic of Gilgamesh, though, is like the basis text as far as stories go, right? Right. But the Odyssey is sort of the, is like that ratcheted. And that's when like, you could say someone dialed it in enough that it's like <laughs> the proper story. Mm-hmm. So, his other things exist. They just didn't, you know. Joe's only so interesting. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. But yeah, I love I love the reference to Athena. And obviously, there's there's no way that the daughter of Ares, the daughter of Athena, daughters of Athena aren't going to play a direct or have a direct implication into our hero's journey at this point as it pertains to the Odyssey either. So... Right. It's fat. It's it's fun stuff. I'm very excited to dive into all that. But we begin breaking down things that Darrow believes that they would be quickly able to provide to them before they take off to their next de- destination. That predominantly pertains to any information that they can glean on the current situation in the solar system. We begin to understand how they managed to know so much, but not all the specifics of everything that opened up the previous chapter. And we find through this AI recording the information that we already know from a meta, from, you know, sort of a dramatic irony perspective, that the Rim and Lysander's fleet are coming for Jupiter, the vague positions of Fa as he is striking out, as well as some AI predictive things about where other components are moving inside of the universe. That telescope is so fucking cool. It's it's a dope scope. I so badly want to play with it. I will I will give up my future and be on like a, a casual observer on this generational ship if I can just play with the telescope all the time. I think that's why Mateo's there, so I get it. <laughs> um I do appreciate that we get to experience this sort of closing of the gap of information from Darrow's perspective and sort of all of these points of views where we have this segregated piles of information and they they all kind of not entirely but fairly cohesively come together for darrow just in this couple hours that he spends searching through the the viewfinders and through the logs of recorded information yeah it's it's such an interesting way of being able to like unpeel and re-roll like i i just kind of loved even like the hand motions and gestures felt very I, I mean, it feels very like Iron Man-y, but apply it to space in a cool way. And that's just, it's sick. It works yeah, great. Totally. Love it. From there, we return to the Archie and we get a comment about Cassius's drinking returning before the plan forward unfurls. Bolsung Fa is the problem here in the belt. Because of this vulture, as he cited, he, Darrow, wants to win over Athena and bring the daughters into the fold with the Helm of Ares. Ore believes this to be a bad idea, being that Darrow is the only one of whom wants to set out, and Darrow also sets very clear expectations that Severo is allowed to make his own choice. Between the pair of brothers here, he points out that this is his inheritance as well before Severo splits and plans to head back to Mars. This, all right, first of all, the helmet's super fucking cool. It is. It's rad. I appreciate and respect Darrow's decision to not put it on. I don't know if that's right here. Or if that's later, but leaving it for Severo to do was great. 
Yeah, that the idea that they both have a claim on an inheritance from Fitchner is I didn't expect that to to be so boldly stated, but it makes sense. Darrow is the 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 primary son of the rising based on his his positioning and Severo is the son of Fitchner, so like to a certain extent they are both the children of Fitchner, and conceptually, I understood this, but to see them recognize it in a weirdly tangible way was kind of touching. I, I think that it was. I would agree. I, I would say that touching is kind of the right way to put it. It is kind of internal. I mean, it's not internal, but it is something that i think darrow does have some claim over if not if not like an actual son as an adopted son right yeah. given his sort of selection in a lot of ways that led to his second life that he even cites at the beginning of the previous chapter with dancer so right in a lot of ways you know dancer is a father quick as a father and fitchner is a father of this second darrow mm-hmm. so yeah I appreciate it, but I also understand Ore's sentiment of like, well, but dude, they didn't invite you. (laughs) (laughs) True. All right. With that, we move into chapter 40, Lyria Departure. We return to Lyria having recorded over the last five weeks. (laughs) Cut, cut, cut. We return to Lyria having recovered over the last five weeks with her surgery and coming to terms with her choice. Ultimately, after a quick cognitive test, she feels like she's in the right place and made the right decision before she and Mateo destroy the parasite once and for all. I still can't get it out of my head based on our conversation last week, maybe, that Mateo could be secretly leaving it in her head entirely unbound with power after sussing out her personality. That theory still has a few holes. But this section didn't entirely quash that theory, with the one exception being assuming he had access to a similar looking specimen to Squish. And I mean, he has five weeks to do so, right? So like, that's the other side of this is that that's plenty of time and you're talking about nigh unlimited resources, like which which direction does this go? Right. I, I think it's an interesting quandary. And I think truth be told, I'm okay with it either way. How do you feel about that? I hope, I think it's more interesting if she is still infested, if you want to call it that, it, it, the implant's still there. I I don't love that it makes Mateo manipulative in that action, but narratively, I like the idea of a power that she deserves but doesn't necessarily want being foisted upon her out of necessity. I think it creates a very fun narrative to play with. Yeah, I hmm I definitely understand that side of things. I also think that there's something to be said about sort of the character moment that that is her choice and like what she believes to be correct. And the way that that builds her as a person in which her power is represented more than just her physical, you know, prowess. Yes, but, but that entire decision was based on the idea that there was a risk of her losing her personality and her thoughts. So 
Yeah. If I, that I, wasn't to, actually a risk, but it was a test, I, I don't I don't see how it's relevant to her decision making. Yes, I you're you're theory crafting a little bit. I'm trying to take the text where it lies, if that makes yeah. sense. That's so text says it lies. That's I, I did ask you mm-hmm. to for the record, but I'm just saying text says it lies. I don't think it, it deprecates from from the intent with the character, perhaps. Fair. Totally. Um, of which I think there are many probabilities or possibilities that could spring from this well. But I think that ultimately, I don't think that it would be a letdown if that wasn't the case. Right. No, I don't think so either. I, I'm not, I wouldn't yeah. be disappointed by it. But there's, there's a lingering hope that superhero Lyria is not dead in the water. Sure. Okay. Not dead in the water, but not abandoned. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So shortly thereafter, she finds out that Darrow is also just in the room next door to her. Her perspective of Darrow here as she enters the room and sort of holds this discussion with him with his eyes closed from red to red is just lovely. They kind of reach an understanding um, between the two that I, I find really fascinating. She blurts out that she wants to go to the rim to find her friend, and there's seriously just so much weight between these two. She has this realization, and personally, I think it's incredible. She says, I sway, knowing only a portion of what those eyes have seen. Eo hanging, armadas burning, a sovereign dying on his blade. For a horrifying second, I realize what it must be to be like him. The man cursed to use the weapons of the enemy to liberate people like me. This was a very, very touching first meeting. I feel like it could have gone a great number of ways. But this, given the circumstances, is probably the best I could have hoped for. Sympathy and compassion on all fronts. I I think that... I think that there is sympathy and compassion, but there isn't genuine, this is, maybe I might not be phrasing this correctly, but roll with me here for a second. Darrow isn't exactly listening either when she speaks initially. Like, he is reacting in the way that I would expect for him to react to most Reds as he meets them for the first time. He gives her a little bit more deference, of course, because of the history there that exists and like knowing that she was a valuable asset. But I think that he still kind of brushes her off a little bit. Yeah, but but that's kind of what I mean by the best I could have hoped for, given his sure. okay, that knowledge makes sense. That makes of sense. her involvement in Pax's abduction. So I mean, yeah. even even the deferent like even the indifference that he seems to kind of display is better than it could have gone. Okay, fair. Fair. I guess I see that. Especially because he, she didn't have a whole lot of say in that. I mean, I, I think that's something that she tries to make very clear throughout this and standing up for herself throughout this section a couple of times. But he doesn't uh, know that. But in this well, know, it, but Initially and, yeah. and yep. totally, like, he doesn't... He's been briefed on it, I'm sure, but there's always going to be that caution and sense of doubt and yeah circumspect of, doubt yeah right that yep. he's going to hold so for him to not treat her with hostility 
and not entirely brush her off even is, I think, a very, very good sign. Yeah, I guess indifference is a good start. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind exactly. of the point. Yeah, okay. I, I can I can see that. I can acknowledge it for sure. I just want to like color this as like, this is actually strangely a more like standoffish Darrow than we otherwise see. And especially on like a first meeting, like she is treating him like a holy artifact in a lot of ways and like believes him as such and sees him as such. And I mean, obviously she doesn't have the sort of reputation or whatever else, but you know, still, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Even that indifference doesn't really shake her foundationally. So the conversation that they have over the course of time in the room following that, the way that she stands up to him though, I really appreciate. I think that's what drives home kind of the the thing that we were talking about, right? is that she is willing to stand up and make her voice heard. But ultimately, even after that conversation, she will not be allowed to go with him. When they find her the next morning in the hangar, where she says goodbye to Mateo before running into her new shipmate, Severo. She knows Severo, of course, but then apologizes for Ulysses, and Severo reacts with a ferocity usually reserved only for enemies as he grabs her by the throat, picks her up off the ground, and is asking for more details. Keep in mind, this is also the least intimidating gold, physically imposing-wise in the series, but in his sort of immediate animal ferocity is a lot. But she then is forced to proceed to explain what happened to his son. This fucking heartbreaking. Fuck, man. You didn't see that one coming, huh? No, I, no, I, sh- I was like, I, I remember... I remember like right after our recording last week where I talked about the potential crossroads that Mm -hmm. Virginia created by not addressing the child at all. And like the child. Yeah. Like I had completely overlooked the fact that their final, like their destination would bring them into companionship with Lyria. Like, one of maybe 10 people who knows what happened. Yeah. Like, one of a couple. One of a few. Yeah. Like, my stomach nodded physically. Like, I I, I tensed up. I, I doubled over almost when she started apologizing. I, but I remember, like, finishing our recording and thinking about it more i was i was gonna start like listening to the next section i'm like oh fuck leary is there i completely overlooked it um and Mm -hmm. yep that's exactly how it went (laughs) and that's exactly i still i still had the very literally physical reaction to reading that apology it's tough not to i mean I cannot blame either party for, at the very least, initial reactions. I think that Severo, in part, overreacts because of the way that he was treated inside of the Abomination's Lair. He's dealing with that, and as we mentioned earlier, he needs therapy because he's making knives for his enemies. Like, that's a lot. (laughs) The guy is this level of ferocious, unhinged, ready to just be released on something so he can stab it forever. But yeah, I mean, oh boy, oh boy. Glad Lyria survived that encounter. Yeah. 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 So 
after Severo flees in that moment to go rejoin with his pile of weapons, as noted in the next chapter, I I really appreciated this moment of where Lyria finally comes to realize potentially what Mateo meant by forced at gunpoint during her goodbye when she gets the kisses on the cheeks and smells his wonderful scent before he he departs and realizes that, oh, truly, she's not being forced down this path. She has other options. She could do other things. And so she does. Yeah. Face value seems intentional. I'm curious if, if it actually was. If Mateo actually intended to uh, leave this option open for Lyria or if it was entirely her reading into it a little bit too much, I, I don't think so. He's smart. He's understanding of Lyria's wants and capabilities. Um, so I, I believe her read on it, but I'm curious if it was intended. I feel like it is. I, I think, I mean, obviously this is the last we see of Mateo and maybe the last we see of Mateo ever. For the record, could be. Yeah, we really, I mean, hard hard to say. I guess technically we get Mateo in the next chapter saying goodbye to Darrow. So it's not quite. But but this this, this week is the last that we are likely to see of Mateo, provided the Tabula Rasa actually goes out on the trip that it's intended. Which is always just this interesting thing of like, he didn't call it the Oculus or was the Oculus the code name? That's a complete side or tangent is it something on Quicksilver. Separate entirely. Or is it something separate and different? Maybe digressing a little bit from that primary point i feel like this is mateo leading her a little bit leading the witness yeah i I just his last thumb on the scale like this is just kind of his like he's just pushing it down just a little bit this yeah it's the most likely option given the circumstances is that it was uh an intended kind of uh code for her Mm-hmm. who knows yeah and this doesn't even touch on i mean i i know that we talked about pretty much all this chapter yet but going back all the way to ver- the very beginning of it there's the note about her sort of the the feeling of the the parasite right and the absence or not the absence but the like sort of sensation of where it was and the fact that she can feel that And then in addition, the idea of memory that she wrestles with of like, is she even really remembering or not? Like, what is memory really? And I. Wow. Talk about an existential crisis that I had even reading that to begin with. I went, oh, fuck. (laughs) Yeah, that really. What do I know, remember, think, feel? Oh, God. Would you even know if if you forgot memory was fucked with? Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I think it's more into less less Lyria, but also more Lysander than anything else. Like that gets into conversations, I think, deeply there. Totally. Cool. All right. With that, we go to chapter 41, Darrow to the stars. So I didn't think we would uh, get an Angels and Airwaves Tom DeLonge cameo in Red Rising, but here we are with this this chapter title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's considered classical space rock at this point. You know, you're probably right. You're probably right. Yeah, in in some sort of realm, I'm sure it's classical. I'm sure it's even considered ancient space rock. But I have to assume that somehow Star Set survived long enough to continue to be making music to this. They're point. still around. They extended. Yeah, they extended those those genes as much as they possibly mm. could. Transmissions forever. Mm. Transmissions forever. 
Divisions is secretly an album about the Dark Tower. You know, there are all these different <laughs> thoughts and takes that I have. Um, is that yeah, secret? I, I, I thought that was like confirmed. Well, no, I, it's impossible for it not to be confirmed for the record because two of the song titles borrowed directly from the texts that are important quotes. Uh, so like that's its own thing. But the whole record isn't necessarily. But like it's pretty clearly inspired by the Dark Tower as is this. Coheen Cambria's uh, fifth record. So which one is that? Afterman? That is no. So that's pre Afterman. That is um, not. Oh, my God. Good Apollo. I'm a burning star. Part two, which is the one with the man walking away as the stars are sort of burning. It's the end of the original set of stories. So gotcha. before the black rainbow, which is a prequel. And then Afterman. that's sort of the original era i would say not that the band changed at all but the original coheed era gotcha okay that came out right before right when we were in high school yeah i remember listening after to man it, was like 2013 or 14 or something like that yes or, or, and black rainbow came out when we were in high school and i did not like it i bought it and listened to it on the airplane to mexico and i had limited funds at the time and i was very disappointed yeah. anyway i digress we return to a repaired and restored Darrow, having regained his flexibility and his core strength thanks to treatments from Quicksilver, in addition to loading up the Archimedes with all sorts of tech before speaking to the additional things that have been given to us here in the form of the God-Killer armor and also the Twilight Helm, that black Ares helmet, to Darrow here as well. Imagine that armor on the Black Ops Obsidian kill squads. Not that they'd need it. Given mm. their their <laughs> reputation, uh, but still, like it's such a boon to have superior tech in general. From a storytelling standpoint, I appreciate that it doesn't come as a "this is superior in every way" kind of way. Like that, it, it comes with a drawback. It comes with a sacrifice in the armor abilities of it, which I think. I hope is pointing towards a more stealth based operation going forward, which we've had before from the Howlers and from Ephraim's heist teams, but we haven't had Darrow in the midst of a cell, like a strictly stealth based mission other than maybe when they get stuck in the mud. But even then, it was less stealth and more surprise that they were banking on. So to see Darrow not rely on brute force and and straight up sword fighting skill is mm-hmm. going to be a lot of fun. If that pans out the way that I'm expecting it to based on the description of armor that we get. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, that's a lot to surmise based on the armor, but I, mm-hmm. I appreciate the thought of, like, this feels like it's leading in a different direction, which also leans into the rest of the themes that we've been talking about, right? Like, it leans into the Darrow versus Reaper and kind of everything else that we've been sort of fixated on over time. Right. Totally. Yeah. There's another note here specifically as Quicksilver and Cassius share a word. Quick speaks decently of Cassius's father, but not of his mother, and then lambasts Cassius himself for the damage that he did all the way back in Golden Sun to Fitchner, his friend, and to the rebellion on the whole. And now Lysander's plague that is spreading among the stars. 
What'd you make of this sort of indictment of I mean, Cassius? You gotta admit that Cassius has had fingers in several very explosive pies <laughs> in the past. I've never had my finger in an explosive pie, but it yeah, sounds I mean, like a bad time. Yeah, it does. Doesn't sound very good, huh? <laughs> it's hard for me to fault Quicksilver in not being eager to trust the man or to... What does he have pointing towards any meaningful change? Like there, there's nothing tangible. There are no actions that he can po- that Darrow could point to or Cassius could point to to prove his his change in intentions, other than just being in Darrow's company, basically. Ooh, good point. So. Like I, I don't, I don't yeah. fault Quicksilver for being cautious and hostile towards Cassius in this moment. Yeah, I would say, generally speaking, outside of you know fixing him up, or rather not fixing him up, but rescuing Darrow to begin with, and the other leaders of the Rising, that's really the only thing outside of killing Octavia that's that he's really done. And we interrogate that a little bit more, kind of. I think in Lyria's chapter, thinking about him as this sort of betrayer. But yeah, I mean, still, it doesn't it doesn't bode well. And the benefit and the the goodwill of killing Octavia is, in Quicksilver's eyes, understandably undone by mentoring and raising Lysander and failing to turn him into something that is different than what came before. Right. I think that's one of the important notes here that maybe Quicksilver doesn't point to, but yeah. He doesn't point to immediately, right? Like he points to it as a failure not, of Cassius's. Not directly, at least. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's tough. That would be that would be tough on me as Cassius. That would be tough on I mean, just in general, but the the sort of refusal to shake his hand as like the last other person who he's ever going to like shake hands with or whatever else. Like this is his kind of final goodbye to society in theory. Yeah. All of theirs. So both of but theirs. Also, if you know that you're saying goodbye to society, I feel like it's understandable to be electric. Well, you can burn that bridge. You're already burning you're, that bridge. You're You're burning the bridge anyway, but you're also like in order to live with yourself going forward. To know that you were perfectly honest with your feelings and you weren't kowtowing to anything and you you weren't to soothe anyone else's feelings in your last moments in conversation with anyone. Yeah. That's got to feel pretty good. It's it's righteous. And in some ways self-righteous, but I think it is truly the definition of righteous. Often you can get that conflated with other sort of moral failings or moral pinnings on people. But I do believe Quicksilver to be cruel, but mostly correct Mm -hmm. in this moment. Yeah. So our heroes are ready to go. They're heading onto their ship. They're about to take off. It's been newly equipped with brand new stealth tech, new metal. It's all been re-equipped. It's going to be doing even better than it was beforehand. And then Severo walks in with his bag full of guns and weapons that he's carrying. And as everyone else is saying goodbye, he stumbles up. He's ready. He's shaved his head in a fresh Warhawk. He's made this decision to go. 
but won't share the why that he's turned around to join the cause as of yet. That scene was depressing and heavy and understandable. <laughs> and I'm I'm proud of Darrow and happy that Darrow knew better than to push for too much in this moment. Maybe, I mean, he definitely doesn't understand why either, but knows not to push Severo too far for any reason. So, in character, made total sense. Yeah, it made so much sense. I, I just really, all around, liked it. It was tough to beat. Mm-hmm. Oof. Ah. All right, with that, we wrap up that chapter and we move into chapter 42, Lyria, Rat in the Machine. I really like um, this set of chapters stuck in Lyria's head as she is listening in the in the vents of the Archie to everything that's going on and the events that are happening beneath her for nearly two weeks. Her situation managing her bowels and food, though, while she's in those vents, not great. <laughs> <laughs> this like no. little bag system that she has tied to her leg that she like pulls on and yanks on down and around corners. Oh my god, rancid. But still she's making it work for her as she's snuck aboard the ship. Also to see this sort of outside perspective of the other parent of Ulysses of several working in his room to music, of which Lyria loves, by the way is just kind of wonderful. We're going to have some other mm-hmm. like bits where we get to see and witness everyone else kind of from from the sort of separate perspective, but in particular to see yeah. the other half of Victra in this moment and in this way. I'm really happy that she likes this music too. It's mm-hmm. it's good to have some sort of kinship between Severo and anybody else when it comes to this kind of stuff. <laughs> Anything? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved this intro section and getting this voyeuristic glimpse into all of the inhabitants of Archie. Her inter- her internal monologue is thoughtful and well well written. It's it's a great opening scene and a great chapter in entirety. Yeah. All around, this is a sort of lovely thing that we get to kind of dive into and and see. And there's a lot more that we're going to get to talk about as we go through. So I don't want to spend too much time lingering. But in particular, Severo grinding away on his workbench, throwing down a welding helmet, welding torch out. Like, it is such a cool, like, montage, as I'm imagining, well, as Severo just, like, piling up knives, angry because of what he knows that he has to do now and channeling his rage from the death of Ulysses into something that is kind of productive in a way yeah what sort of weapon do you think will be named harmony well Harmony's dead so i question whether or not he'll i don't think he'll not make a weapon for her anyway and he doesn't know that right the extent of what he knew is the red hand and i would assume that he has enough intelligence on he the red knows hand that to know that it's harmony he knows harmony know he knows that leads the dead. red right he yeah. doesn't know that yeah. so he's going to make a weapon for the leader of the red hand sure which he understands to be harmony so he's going to create some fucking diabolical weapon something like brutal and unhinged and i want to know what you think that might be because i think that's what he's working on right now Hmm. 
I think that Weapon would most likely be, I think that he is probably devising something like a tree that he can stab through her heart, right? And to like nail her to the ground basically through a tree or something like that. Like I would imagine it would be some sort of dramatic. It would be dramatic regardless. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be like a mace that is just a tree. And after bashing her head in with the tree mace, he would then puncture where her heart is and pierce her into the ground. Yeah. I could also see it just bashing until it makes a, a dagger that looks like a, a giant nail. Yeah, that could work. What was his, do you, what were his knives called? Do you remember? Oh, Tickler and, was the was the one that I remember. Yeah, maybe it was just Tickler. For some reason, I thought there were two, but there's there definitely might have been tickler. a second one, but I don't recall it. Yeah. Anyway, the change in perspective that she gets to from these people, I think, is excellently portrayed. Her imagination of what they were at the camps and then meeting her heroes, quote here, she finds them very serious people. And not only are they a lot, but they have a lot to deal with. It's definitely eye-opening for her. A little bit of disillusion, a little bit of humbling respect, a little bit of fear. <laughs> I, it's, it's a dose of reality that I think she probably needed, but wasn't expecting. And I, I only say yeah. that she needed it in that she still held Darrow as this larger than life godlike figure, even through all the shit she's been through with the upper echelon of the Republic. Darrow's something else. He is separate from that. And to to be to have that level of uh larger larger than life status dispelled is important, I think, for her. Okay. Yeah, I I think, well, okay, important for her or like, it's important for her in the long run is what you're intending there, right? It's important for- What do you mean by important for her? For them to be able to collaborate and to- Got it. So removing the mystique makes them feel like real people. And so it prevents the kind of the scene that we saw earlier from recurring, basically. Yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. Got it, got it. Just need your clarification on that. Yeah, not not that there's anything more than that. Just that, just that she needs to know that she's dealing with people, and yeah, it, it'll it'll help keep her alive and safe and able to negotiate going forward. Like she'll she'll be able to. I don't think it, I don't think she'd be able to properly negotiate for her desire to seek out Volga if she mm-hmm. didn't have this disillusionment ahead of that. Got it. Got it. If she wasn't dissuaded because she already was dissuaded from that because she believed the larger than life hero. Like she was talked out of it entirely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that makes sense. Lyria also provides us with a great perspective on Cassius and his sort of sense or where he's at in the moment. He's moved to predominantly drinking alone to nurse's feelings during these lonely hours as they're cited. Lyria, in part because of Cassius's stupor, is able to steal food, and in particular, she finds jars of sunflower butter rather tasty. 
which continues to tempt her further and further. It's actually in the end, as we find out, what actually tips Severo off at Mm -hmm. this point. But I do particularly also appreciate the fact that Severo uses the larder's ham, of which he cited before as the sort of measure in which uh, a calf should be considered. It's it's just a great temptation to like layer out there. And for the first serious time in this series, in this secondary series, we return to the whole saga's true intent. Food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she goes for it. She dives on it. She gets caught in the trap left by Severo in that moment. Always good to bring it back to the the true important theme of the series. The, the, you know, it's been a bit. It's been a while. It, we lost yeah. track for a second. There. We did, and I'm glad to be back on this roller coaster with you. Yeah, aren't gold headed splashes of you know rim food? But that's been about it. Does sunflower butter exist? I'm sure. It, yeah, I, of I'm sure. It does. I'm sure you can yeah. make it. But like in no, in it, a, it exists right now. I want to try it. It's it's an it alternate sounds, for uh, for people of whom can't eat peanut butter. It's like no, it, I, it is the ultimate. I, I believe it. It's just sunflowers are so like almond butter to to deal with on a on an industrial level to be able to adequately make a to be to to deshell such a small thing without uh, compromising it. I'm sure like I'm sure there are industrial processes that make it a lot easier than trying to individually deshell sunflower seeds. Well, I mean, you can get them in like jars, like plain sunflower seeds in jars. I'm sure they're not individually deshelled. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. All right, never mind. I um, was, I was generally, I need, I need to clarify at the very least. I was not trying to be skeptical of you. I thought that you might have like fully inside knowledge because of your current role in sort of farming-driven manufacturing um, that would have known something about how specifically tough it is to deshell. Sunflower nope. seeds. I was so ready. Nope. <laughs> not at all. Okay. All right. Um, all right. I just had to, you know, check on that. No, not at all. Uh, okay. But this section mm-hmm. is probably my favorite bit of like prose and internal monologue, specifically from Pierce Brown and within this entire series. Period. Like th- this manic spiraling thought process and the justification building on justification building on action everything that she does here is so fun and impressive to read it's so well written it's it's bold behavior being rewarded by bold behavior and ignore like it's it's manic it is she's almost got an addict's mindset in the totally moment, totally know? yeah and like her rewarding herself for ignoring the ham <laughs> being the justification for going for the ham like it, it's cyclical it's it's not actually sensical and it's not logical mm-hmm. and it but she she has this perverted sense of logic and reason that she like it's totally an addict's mindset that's being written here but it's desperation it's it's nine days of barely eating it's so well 
written. I'm I'm really impressed by it. That said, as soon as she mentioned the sun butter, the sun was it sun butter or sunflower butter? Sunflower butter. Yeah. Okay. As soon as she mentioned it, knowing that Darrow mentioned it as Severo's newest addiction, I figured that would be the the downfall. I was mm-hmm. thinking that would be the trap or that it would be poisoned. Uh, mm-hmm. Like that that's where my mind went. But, but Severo knew you measure a larder by its ham, you yeah. know? Yeah, I yeah. had I had overlooked that part of it. Mm-hmm. So you know that means that he put a good ham in the larder. You know what I mean? It's a self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecy in this totally. case. Totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. And that that trap going out, like it's so it's so good. This this oh, chapter lovely. When I talked about like my favorite chapter of the series so far, it's been this. It's crazy. It's so good. It's crazy. It's absolutely bonkers, but it is a great chapter. But I, you know, just to reiterate here, we're we're talking about our adoration for this this moment. I fucking love Lyria. Her trying to make that clear over the course of the, and I've been trying to make that clear, I should say, over the course of the podcast. But now we have her here with our giants of the story. Finally, it feels like this moment that we've been kind of waiting to happen by and large as we've gone through the books. We've seen her interact with Victra and other folks, but it's just so damn lovely. This moment where she's going to be dropped out of an airlock by Severo is so funny inside of the bag saying she didn't scream as funny. Severo kicks her hard, which is less funny, but still <laughs> kind of funny because he probably doesn't know how hard he kicked her because he's a gold and just doesn't really understand Cassius asking if a person in the is if it's a person in the bag to begin with is so funny. God damn it, Pierce. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the comedy of mm-hmm. especially the second half, the 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 last like sort of scene of this chapter. Not last scene, but the, this second sort last, of kind of it's actually there's this chapter extends itself a bit. It, it goes a lot longer than you think it does. I yeah, I really yeah, yeah. thought it could there were be two, two chapters. chapters here. Yeah. I, I thought it was two. In sort of recollecting it. Yeah. But this comedy totally is a major factor in why I think this is one of my favorites chapters. I yeah. maybe, maybe I'm a little bit bold in saying it's my favorite chapter in the series, but it is my favorite chapter in the book so far. Hmm. Okay. I can I definitely to, understand like, that. I, I'm sure if I really thought about it more, I could find probably a a handful of chapters in a bunch of the books that uh, match or surpass it, specifically some of the Ladon chapters from both Darrow and Lysander's perspectives. Yeah. Dark Age. I mean, but there's those. There's even like, I know we've talked about this a long time ago, but like Bacon and Eggs is just yeah. always such a good chapter. There's so many. Uh, there's you know, so like many. That's, that's a good old option. Kind of but, funny celebration chapter. This feels like that though, in many ways. It's reminiscent. It, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And to be in it, a perspective that a lot of people write off just makes it true. even more heavy. Yeah, yeah. And not only not only from the meta perspective of like a perspective that fans write off, but from in the world, right, of like in this world, a lot of people don't think about reds substantially and especially from the society's perspective. I think it's great to have this person, you know, We've we've also seen this behavior before. This is not our first stowaway. Rona did the same thing back in Iron Gold. So 
Yeah, we don't get her perspective though. Like that that's what I, I love oh, about yeah. this yeah, is yeah, yeah, the, yeah, for sure, the for sure. thought yep. process and the justifications and the I was the, speaking more to it as like yeah. a cultural thing of like reds, for sure. you know, for sure. being good stowaways. <laughs> Less, but yeah, you're you're correct. This is it's a great perspective to inhabit. Mm-hmm. Um we do also finally get Lyria's goal on this whole adventure, and that is Volga, Ragnar's daughter and Fa's granddaughter. We, of course, have known this for a while, that this is going to be sort of her objective. But I love that we kind of see her set out and say, this is what I want. I also really appreciate the spine that we see from Ore standing up to Darrow, the Reaper, the Terror, the Rebel, the leader of the cause, for Lyria here, it's such a huge deal. Not that she's not capable of standing up for herself, but to see an ally do so, I think, is really affirming not only of Lyria's place inside of this group, but also of the fact that, at the very least, on the ship, everyone is a lot more equal than it might otherwise appear outside of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Darrow agrees to Lyria's terms that if she has a shot to get Volga, he'll let her go and try, so long as it doesn't interfere with any of the other plans. And they spit and shake hands in the old style of the red culture, of which is such a cool fucking moment to have between the pair of them. Yeah, it is. <laughs> this agreement that they make, that they come to, feels so very reasonable. Like, it, it mm-hmm. feels obviously reasonable. But there are power imbalances and and other things to take into consideration so it feels like a win for lyria in that respect i love this raw traditional handshake at the end and i i so can't wait for this like the telling of this handshake to be relayed to liam i that's gonna be if that happens, hopefully that happens. And if it does, for for him to hear that Lyria spat in her hand and shook it, shook Darrow's spit-filled hand, uh, might kill him. Like, might just straight up kill him. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. He, you know, I, I hadn't even considered that thought so much inside of the series that like that is going to be the legacy in a lot of ways is is going to be some of that younger generation but in particular Lyra's Lyria's story here feels like one that lends itself to retelling in this way Mm -hmm. um as like you know old auntie getting to kind of share the war story and the I don't know that's that's actually such a great point I I thought about well I I was I feel like fairly intentional in my description of how Liam might hear about it. I don't know if Lyria will make it back. Mm. But. Okay. I could totally imagine if she doesn't, if she perishes in any way and Darrow doesn't for whatever reason. For Darrow to meet with Liam and recount this story. Mm-hmm. how how touching that might be like there there are so many ways that liam could hear this story be it from a first party or a second party all of them would be touching 
all of them would be yeah. important. Mm-hmm. Oh, Liam getting to be the survivor innately. Oh, he man. Yeah. Fuck. I like that. I like that. I hadn't I hadn't really considered that side of the perspective, which is something that I feel like should be brought up a little bit more often just within. It's almost you, you don't want it to be overbearing, but you want to make sure that it's present of like. I feel like it's present. Enough. She brings it up sure. when it when yeah. it's necessary and when it's relevant. Yeah. We we read at a low at a slow enough pace that um, there's there's been several weeks since Liam's been mentioned, but I, I don't think. I think that's a an in, an inflated sense of distance between the last time that he's been mentioned sure. generally. So that makes sense. Yeah. Following that up, Lyria heads to a shower and has a conversation with Ore, followed by one with Cassius as she becomes familiar with the Archie, given her own room and much shock at the fact that a loon was on board the ship previously. But it also leads to a painful conversation that forces Cassius to reflect on what he did to both Ares and to Octavia as this turncoat that is a crucial point and inflection point for both for the rising twice. They agree to share a drink and Cassius asks if she has a call sign before Lyria lies and then tells that she has a true true one truffle pig. Let's drink for 140 proof blood. 140 proof blood. And Cassius going, finally. And fucking looking up. Idiot. This was her one real actual shot. Like her one legitimate (laughs) shot at getting rid of this call sign. I didn't know what you were going for at first. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. It's such a pity. (laughs) Oh, my God. She could have just said no. Mm -hmm. And for Cassius, Severo, and Darrow to present her with a call sign would supersede fucking everything. But she lied and gave a, like, unbelievable call sign and then gave the real one. Like, fucking idiot oh my god <laughs> she could she could have been rid of truffle pig forever i like the name i like the name for her let's mm. be real like i i appreciate that she gets to keep being called truffle pig it's funny it's relevant it, it, it makes sense it's very good but she could have just said no and the weight of the people that she is living with right now would have totally overwritten her previous call sign. Yeah, the the whole like his response to just to that moment. Oh, dear. You really <laughs> shouldn't have told me that. It's just so good. It's so and, good. But also knowing that she is melting for him. As like the most beautiful man she's ever seen. Yeah. Mm. Or not seen, ever talked to. She specifically doesn't right. say that she's the most he's the most beautiful man he she's ever seen. But I don't that's probably true too, but that's not the verbiage she uses. I remember like making note of that for some reason in my head that 
it's the most beautiful man she's interacted with. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely true. Yeah, and I it's interesting. I do you do you what sort of questions do you have about this sort of future ship? I'm 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 saying ship because is it a relationship, is it a friendship, what is it? Oh, I don't think there's anything that I don't think there's anything romantic that goes on between them. I think her recognition of Cassius's beauty is purely observational. I don't I don't think she seems to have feelings for him or even an infatuation for him. I want to note that he does she does specifically talk about Ore and he said and she says you're sweet on her why else would you be so nice to me and he replies with shall I be rude he flirts and I blush right like now flirt can be used in context that isn't just like sort of datey and whatever else mm-hmm. like you can you can be flirty without implying anything romantic it's I a, think it's that's a sense of conversation but I think that's just how Cassius speaks I don't I don't get the sense that he has any intentions of a romantic uh, connection to Lyria at all. I think there's a friendship um, that that can be forged here. And I don't I don't see Lyria being motivated for anything other than a friendship. With Cassius, I, I, I think the idea of being close to him is probably kind of intimidating and and maybe a little bit dangerous given his reputation so i i don't see a situation that could arise where they would be more than fairly close companions and maybe closer than expected companions but i don't see anything truly romantic popping up between them okay yeah i totally get that I, I also don't think that there's any, like, right or wrong answer necessarily. I'm just curious, you know, mm-hmm. as to your thoughts at this sort of, you know, <clears throat> even if it's friends, I use this term, but this sort of meet cute, right, of the moment. Oh, for um, sure. Like, th- there's just sort of the way that that goes down. There's a lot of kindred traits between them. Like, their... Totally. Their ability to handle their liquor as as a very out there and visible first connection yeah totally like a like a podcast about literature and drinking first visible and notable connection (laughs) cheers cheers all right with that we enter our final pov of the week we've got two chapters one's really short inside of this but we've got chapter 43 lysander fragment of immensity. Lysander finally makes his way on board the Dustmaker after he's invited by Diomedes and notes how incredible this whole civilization is that functions here as a small and immense things impact its perfect flow. All the way down from the smallest people running between the halls, the reds and the browns impacting things and cleaning, to the way that this yields itself into the large civilization that is the Rim as it continues to impact and be the largest the second largest starfaring civilization of all time, behind only the society itself. The society specifically when it also included the Rim. 
Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's only second yeah. because it was a part of the first. Yeah. Right. Right. Like it's because bigger it than the society part. after remnant. Yeah. Well, after the split of the rim. Like, because I feel yeah, like when sure. we interacted with the society, it was separate from the rim. That's really only for half of Morningstar, though. You know, like that's only the rim okay. is always a part of the society as like it's number one. Right. But to your point, what that means is that effectively what we're establishing here is that the society fully encompassing was number one. The rim is number two. The society core and republic fight for number three, depending. But I guess they're probably kind of tied with each other for number three based on their literal reach. population dynamics. Their yeah. their literal reach and influence. Yeah. But then we head onto the bridge and meet the bridge's Kidamonas, Ophelia Auzagra, of whom also congratulates him for the Battle of Phobos, giving him what we assume to be a customary greeting for something su- successful, kissing her fist and then pounding it on her chest twice, which seems to be just another little rimism that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Totally. I agree. At the same time, this is a very strange middling dynamic, I guess. Mm-hmm. It, it's friendly, but it's tense. And almost hostile, not not quite hostile, but guarded. So it's it's a very nice exchange between Lysander and Auzegra, where Lysander gives due compliments, and even on that personal level, she kind of guards herself from it. Um, he sees it as shying away from. The limelight that she's uh, attracting to herself from her uh, accolades on on the battlefield, but either way, it's it's this weirdly tense, friendly antagonist. Not quite antagonistic, but it's not quite friendly, but it's not quite antagonistic, and it's this weird middle ground. Yeah, I it kind of feels like you know this is kind of a loose metaphor or analogy, but like a T-cell standing at the door and being like, all right, you look fine. You're probably not a bacteria. And then watching you the whole time to make sure that you're not like (laughs) fucking around with the red blood cells. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of, it's kind of got that vibe of like, all right, you're clear. I'm going to take your weapons just to make sure. But yeah. Yeah. Especially as we think about this whole thing is this immense system, right? That, that Lysander is interacting with. Mm hmm. So we then move to Diomedes with the cestus on his hand, the cestus of Zeus. And I find this piece of lore to be mostly to be a fascinating one, but it's one that lies in both its simplicity of something that is completely unnecessary and not necessarily there for the sake of vanity, but for the sake of its historicity and the impact that it had on the culture of the rim on the whole. It feels like something left over from the age of Akari and Selenius. Returning to the moment at hand, his Helios's entrusting of Diomedes with this feels very strong while he goes off on his own mission. There's a lot of trust here. Yeah, it's strong. Sure. But based on what we know about Helios, it seems born out of necessity rather than a strict 
sense of unwavering trust. Helios, is, as far as we can understand, is scared for this situation that the Rim is in. I love the lore drops. I love I love the conversations about the Cestus and Akari. Is it a golden statue elevated or is it like the actual sort of frozen mummified remains of Akari? Like I assume it's a statue because the I, remains are outside of his his grave back in, you know. Right. Yeah, I just I didn't know if they had collected him and <laughs> strung him up in the in yeah. the dust maker. They call it an iron relief, so it is meant to be okay. a, a okay. sort of, you know, literal relief, mm. but yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it is it is definitely a lot, especially to add in some of those details. So the pair of golds, though, Diomedes and Lysander, after talking and, and shaking out some of the specifics of seeing the Cestus in action on the bridge and kind of the way to, that it is outdated, but also still flexible and fascinating, they leave and eat on a mother table from Demeter's garter inside of Helios Alux's study or Cook's room. What? Hmm? Main Cooks? theme of the book. Oh. They do. They they have smoked trout, of which he was otherwise eating like weird bad shit, and he was like, "Oh, this is so much better." Or like, well, and he didn't really a boiled kind of boiled trout, right? Kind of. It's it's. He points out that the only reason they're eating it is because it's probably gotten to the point where the rest of the army is going to eat it too. Like, I yeah, I, which is I so which is the way that it goes. Appreciate that. That has continued mm-hmm. from uh, what's his fucking name? Uh, Dido's husband. Romulus? Romulus. Romulus's mm-hmm. assertion that they need to eat exactly what their people have access to, even in their opulent or seemingly opulent um, elevated status. They are a people that share with their constituents. I I like that that sentiment has not gone by the wayside when Romulus died. So, yeah, by by no stretch, for sure. I know it's a core tenant of the rim, but I'm glad it was not just a core tenant of the rim because Romulus was the one in power of the Rim. Yes. I don't know that it was just entirely Romulus. I know that it was obviously a thing of the Rim, but it, it feels like it's something of the raw line at the very least and, and of mm-hmm. this sort of continual primary family that is involved in sort of this whole story so, right. of the Raws. But we get we get through a couple of different things. We get through details on Lysander's health and the moves that have been made by Thaw out here in the Far Inc. And as it approaches Ilium, and even on their side, they're questioning where the loyalty of Thaw lies. There's also this fun quote that Diomedes says that I really like. I wouldn't call it fun, but this excellent quote that Diomedes says, where he says, "It is better for an enemy to be strong and visible than to be missing and capable." And within this scene as well, Lysander drinks an entire cup of plum wine that he says that he has to get some for Apollonius because he loves it. And then in addition, Diomedes sips some of his own. So the Pixie drank it all, but we're drinking with Diomedes. I'm curious to see if that sort of promise 
that Lysander makes to himself to get more for Apollonius. I'm curious to see what he thinks of it. How he might to react. see what Apple thinks of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be interesting. I would agree. Mm-hmm. Something I really like about these conversations is the insight that we get into the society and how they understand the Republic and the Republic's motivations and kind of distilling that down to, well, the Republic is Virginia and Virginia's motivations are this. And they're kind of accurate. (laughs) They're kind of right in, in that distillation for i mean maybe it's maybe it's just in this instance but lysander is fairly capable in his ability to break down people that he knows motivations and he knows virginia pretty well from his time living with her so it's mm-hmm. an indictment i guess into the of sorts of sort, totally of sorts, and I in, in narrow in scope, but it being correct kind of proves that Virginia herself is while while the figurehead and the sovereign is also the one totally pulling the strings in Lysander's head and in Lysander's eyes, as far as these. Uh, broad sweeping decision making things go even though ostensibly and theoretically the 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 republic is much more democratic in nature he's still able to distill it down to a single person's decision making process and accurately in this case deduce from that whether or not they're at fault for or responsible for what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to see them kind of dance around these different topics and whether or not and who, and if they're capable of and sort of the rationale of like, well, if we believe any of the Intel that we have on Cephi and kind of all these different components that are kind of assembled into this picture to give us this idea of who Fa is from the other side, because we predominantly seen Fa as a, uh, antagonistic force from the side of the Republic. There's a lot going on there. So. There's a ton going on there. It's just, it's interesting for Lysander to be accurate and also so derivative in his thought process. Because, <laughs> you know, what if, it, I mean, Lysander's good, but maybe he's a little predictable. True, totally. What do you think about their conversation that happens shortly thereafter surrounding Roan and the rising tension among everyone as they approach Ilium, as this conflict approaches with a force that is not the Republic? I mean, given the outbursts and the out-of-character interactions before they set sail, I think it's entirely reasonable to question Roan. Tensions are high, but everyone has a common goal. So while I don't think this campaign is going to work like the well-oiled machine that either side of the army are used to, like the, the rim forces and the core forces, both 
probably expect a very well maintained and directed chain of command and that that's not going to be the case for them i don't think there's going to be significant infighting either it, it's just going to be a little bit more bumpy than either of them have come accustomed to yeah it does seem like it's going to be a little bit more complex on all fronts and and this was less of anyone but diomedes just kind of asking the question of his praetorians of this top level guard that lysander keeps nearest to him so Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's it begs any sort of deeper questions so much as it does. Like, what's the status of your troops? Like, how are you maintaining them? And Yo, what's it feels up? like that's a character driven. Yeah, feels like that's yeah. sort of this honest conversation that Lysander has been wanting to have with Diomedes so badly. And he's finally made it into that those sort of personal confidences. So he's getting to have a more serious conversation than the sort of the way that he's been put off before. Right. Yeah. I really appreciate in this scene as well that we get a recounting of the story of Severo abducting Lysander here and offers the sort of a varied perspective on what happened and advises him to very quickly kill the goblin if he sees them. And Diomedes returns the same advice back to Lysander about the Ascomani on the rim that they mm-hmm. should be put down immediately. I felt really good to get the other side of that interaction. Um, We just (laughs) saw Severo show up with a Santa Claus sack full of Lysander. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very good point. It was a lot of fun to uh, learn how he was abducted and kind of the background around it. And I felt happy to know that it left a lasting traumatic impression on the man's brain so yeah 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 it's it's kind of fun especially because he doesn't dream and he's not afraid of much when he dreams but the one thing he is is the goblin coming for him in the night you know like mm-hmm. that's that perfect level of several horror that we want for kind of the again, point. our favorite little pixie We also get this note on the way that progresses our story here. They're to set sail in a line at Kalaki and then go quiet before they strike at the moons, eliminating the Oscomani threat before they make their way back to partake in the war on Mars. We kind of see the outlay of the entire plan in front of them. This is also the section where we get a description of ghost sailing, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sort of like minute micro movements. Dude. Mm-hmm. So fucking cool. Yeah. I mean, but also like totally conceivable in how you might figure how to conservatively traverse a very densely populated, a sky very densely populated with moons. So, yeah, it's it's rooted in a reality, but creates this insane it's it's a theory of travel that can't be properly followed by somebody who didn't grow up there. So it's it's unique. It's 
it's just so fucking cool, man. I I so badly wanted them to go into more descriptions of it. I know it it would have been unnecessary. Like they they got pretty deep into the <laughs> description of it, deeper than I would have expected from a from a high level storytelling perspective. But I still want more because I'm a glut, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I I really appreciate it as well because I think it also does a really good job of highlighting that there are like subtle technological advancements that the rim has but the reason that they're really so good at this is because they've become in their own way masters of gravity right and the masters mm-hmm. of these sort of gentle tugs and pulls through the moons to basically weave between them and then using the density of Jupiter and Uranus and Saturn variously to propel themselves towards targets. Well, it's, it's so well done. The gravity of everything, of all the moons. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And Lysander remarking that it's more of an art than, a, than math really kind of points that out, that this is, this is something felt, not something taught theoretically. Yeah, and even the way that Diomedes describes it as weather, like the the as, the conditions of the belt as weather, I think is lovely. Where you know, like bad asteroids are are good or bad weather, and good asteroids are good weather, and and the, you have to the alignment deal with that of just the like sailing moons. Yeah, it's there are going to be in a lifetime very few interactions where it, it's identical to anything else yeah and, that it's ever the probably same. never in a lifetime where mm-hmm. it's identical given the number of moons and the fact that they're all on different orbits yeah and i think they said something like 20 something have inhabited and you know 50 something in total or 40 something in total there's, there's a good there's number over there. 100 it's like 130 moons and it's like two-thirds of them are inhabited I felt mm, like it was something okay. like For some that. reason, I thought the lo- numbers were lower than that. I thought it, it was could, like 50-ish. It could be, but I, I'm... Regardless, it's a, it's a crazy number of like inhabited moons. Jupiter, right? What we know and understand. Yes, but I, I'll look it up textually. Don't worry about it. The number what of moons on Jupiter in reality, there's 95 with confirmed orbits as of March 23rd, 2023. 121 is the number that they show. Right. Yep. Yeah. Is that the same number? No, 95. Okay. Yeah. There was some number earlier that speaks to the number of inhabited and like there's there's another quantification number that I think is 20 and 50 or 20 and 40 or something like that. But yeah, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. No biggie. You're right. But that clarifies that on that front. So cool. With that, I want to just bring up, because we're going to talk about it in a moment, but we're inside of Helios's room, of course, and we see a razor with a grape symbol, the grape symbol of Dionysus pressed into the hilt. I don't think that's important. I don't think it's relevant to that we haven't seen upon. since the actor's theater. So we're going to yeah. move into chapter 44, our final chapter of the week, Lysander, Grapes and Iron. We approach Kalaki and we begin to see a plan pull itself together. We hail looks all the while. Lysander confirms that the Lightbringer probably won't contribute to any of this at all. 
Helios is immediately skeptical of Lysander's placement on the bridge, but settles that it might be a good thing in the end. We have a little conversation here that happens with Dido as well over the comms between the group of them before we hang up the call. And the previous announced, previously announced plan seems to be on track. Yeah, you you say that Lysander confirms, but he, he's kind of depressed about it. He he yeah. begrudgingly accepts the fact that the Lightbringer probably won't be there in time to actually interact. But I don't think that's in, that important. No. Um, the most important thing for his narrative that he's trying to craft is the fact that he's here and mm-hmm. he's actively participating. The Of which Diomedes is also supporting. Yeah, totally. Like yeah. It, it it's it's not it's not undercut by anything. And the idea that the Lightbringer's on its way, I think, could still benefit his narrative that he's that he's crafting right so yeah it could totally help shape that that story Mm -hmm. i would agree we we get this hologram of helios in the Mm -hmm. field and based on the description of his skin and his face it seems to match pretty well with the end of this chapter so for for from my perspective, it feels like this is after whatever swap might have happened has happened. Am I reading too far into things with that? Is is there anything that I'm missing in the descriptions directly? Well, A, couldn't tell you because, you know, Raffo. Okay. But B, it is interesting that his face skin is described as loose and other things like that. Like there are components here. And, that, and um, off color, like there, there, there are a lot of descriptions that are suspect in retrospective analysis. Yeah. Did you not pay attention to this initially? Like, were you not on it until the very end or? It, it, why would it I? just flew by? Yeah, right. I mean, just like, like, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like I, I remarked on the fact that he was commenting on his appearance, but it. I assumed it was something either radioactive or chemical or a broader sort of environmental hazard. He's got a burnt mustache. He's got this burned it's, face handprint on, hand on his face. It's a handprint on his face. There's so many things. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot to it. But no, I didn't. It didn't initially tip me off. To the idea that he could be an imposter. Like, I, why would that have crossed my mind? Just curious. You know, it's no, that's just fine. one of those things. It's just, totally, just totally to fine. But remarkable, but not, not. He also comments on having lost all those ships, but leaving them behind, right? To like guard other mm-hmm. sectors. And so like, you're, you're like, you're just, you're gently guided into this this moment of like oh yeah no everything's fine he's got a plan he knows what he's doing i'm not worried about it why would i be worried i have no reason this this type of betrayal has never happened before we have seen haggard military leaders on on a lot of hologram before in in many Mm -hmm. different occasions so 
it didn't tip me off in any like remarkable way. Okay, cool. Just curious. So the armadas coalesce near Kalaki as planned, and Helios returns on his smaller set of torch ships to claim back his ship with all of his variety of wounds, his head a little bit red and stapled on the top almost, not actually stapled, but like, I don't know, I would maybe describe it, I don't remember the textual description, but almost like crimped is the way that I imagine it to some degree. He's got a limp, his shoulders are slumped, he's got all of these small things that are just off with him, including a mirrored copy of his daughter's Katari that was present originally at the play they went to and saw way back when with Lysander, um, but also in his office the chapter prior at the same time, proving potentially that this man is a fraud. If you're playing a, if you're paying a gross amount of attention to detail here, right, which is which crazy, Lysander is, but he doesn't even realize it then, right? Diomedes does, of course, and we'll get to no, that. Lysander, but- I, I felt like that was Lysander's realization point was when he noticed the Qatari. Yeah, but he doesn't really know. Like he he definitely notices and is becoming aware that something is off or wrong potentially, but he doesn't know that something is wrong. Like cuz if he really did, he would have said something right in that moment. Okay. He's suspicious. He's more than suspicious. He's like elevated my tensions. head my mm-hmm. my understanding of it and maybe I was just kind of projecting it on to Lysander. When Lysander, when when from Lysander's perspective, we point out that this Katari sh- was just seen in in that dining room area. That's where I thought that this was fucked. So I yeah. oh, I guess yeah. I maybe projected onto. Like that understanding, like that that feeling I projected onto Lysander, maybe. I definitely think that that is a moment in which something appears to actually be off. Like something is physically off that isn't just appearance driven, right? Mm -hmm. That is something that is not this war-torn, haggard person. But he hasn't come to a conclusion yet, right, that something is actually wrong. That's... That comes a little bit later with Diomedes' action. Diomedes has already come to that conclusion when he looks at his feet. The one other thing that I wanted to bring up is, for me, in comparison, you point out the the razor. The thing that tipped me off was the limp. Um, because we know someone else has a limp. Ooh, interesting. And the slight hunch. And I went, yeah. And then the razor, and I went, that's what it is. That's... I hadn't I hadn't come to that conclusion. Oh. Shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Before before I hand it off completely, just rounding out the whole thoughts in the chapter so that we can talk about it all encompassing and, and sort of the reveal. Diomedes asks a clarifying question after handing off the Cestus, according to custom and code. We see Diomedes shortly thereafter, even though as his DNA is being tested and he's able to hold the Cestus without experiencing that pain that is unlike any other that is four times worth than he unsleeves the man and we see this topography of flesh that is mismatched at the elbow a pale skinned arm and a dark sunburnt flesh that is from the elbow up 
as it's described as topography. And we know in this moment that despite him wearing the face, despite him wearing the arm, that this man is not Helios Outlux. The eeriest thing about this is something that you've already made mention of in the idea that the uh, codes and clarifying answers were given properly. That mm-hmm. that implies either a very extensive session of torturing or a previously uh, like misunderstood amount of absorbing one's brain and and thoughts Ooh. and understandings it's fucked <laughs> totally fucked mhm i don't know i don't know what to make of it so i have to ask pj when or at what point was helios replaced oh fuck man given all the information you have the more that I think about it, the more I don't have mm-hmm. an idea. I, wow. I, it, okay. It, it seems like the most obvious answer is sometime during the mission where he hands control to Diomedes, control of the Dustmaker. But thinking about it more, there's commentary on his features early on in the book, like even on Mercury. Right, right at the beginning, where Helios and Diomedes meet with Lysander. So it, it's, I'd have to go back and and maybe reread the entirety of this book to try to catch a glimpse of when things go sideways. Your comment on the idea of a hunch and limp being a factor points to it being what we are presented with that it's during this fight and after our last interaction with Roan potentially so I don't know I don't know man it's it's getting more and more fuzzy the more I think about it which is frustrating and enticing and exciting I am so excited for you to immediately leave this episode and go read the next chapter and find out because you're gonna just have your mind blown maybe yep. If if that's there, I guess. Who knows? Maybe. Could be. Maybe. Could be. Could be there. Could be there. Excellent. All right. I am very excited. I'm very glad that we got to wrap this up. Any other thoughts that you want to close out the week on? Anything else that you think that we missed? Nothing off the top of my head. Cool, rad, dope. We love it when you have nothing on the dome left over here. I so like it when my brain's the, empty. I love it. Head empty, no thoughts, right? I am very, very, very excited for next week's reading, PJ, here. Next week, we are going to be continuing Part 3, Tempest, reading chapters 45 through 52. So, another group of chapters to entice and enlighten you as we continue on our journey through Lightbringer. But, that's where we're going to leave all y'all for this week. Thank you. As ever, to Tim and Andrew for being the backbone of our show and keeping everything going. Check out the links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, our social media accounts, nude pictures of Crossland, 
all in one convenient location. Everywhere. Yep. Those are actually available for free because I knew that I couldn't make any money on OnlyFans. So I just put them out there because, you know, like what's a little bit of, you know. It's bold. It's know. a bold. It's a pound of flesh. Marketing it's strategy. just a pound of flesh. Yeah. Uh, bo- a know. pound is generous. Oh, more than generous. Beyond that, if you don't leave us a five-star review, we will ensure that we turn your hand into my, we'll replace my arm with your arm and my face with your face. And I will greet your family members at three holidays of your choosing. But I'm not going to do those holidays that you choose. I'm going to visit them on different holidays. Got it? Cool. Right. That was That's my threat. Crossland's going on all the most problematic holidays he's going on columbus day he and he will call it <laughs> columbus know. day specifically he's, he's going on thanksgiving and he will tell the story is also of how the pilgrims did prevailed the right thing. over the native american cultures he he will talk about how christianity overcame all of the, the paganism way. of christian or of, of christmas yeah, he he is going to be the most non PC. I will be the character in the next of. chapter that you think that I am. <laughs> all right. With that, we will see you next week. Love you all. Okay. All right. Good night. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>